Zero Foxtrot does not profess to share or promote the opinions and beliefs expressed by show host or guests. The Stay Zero podcast was created to provide a platform for servicemen and women to share their stories. Due to the nature of this podcast, sensitive topics will arise. Conversations about combat, PTSD, drug use, and other such subjects will occur. Viewer discretion is advised. Welcome back to the Stay Zero podcast. I am excited to introduce to you David Nelson. If you remember one of our first few episodes, his daughter, Jessica Garner, came in. And so this is kind of a really cool opportunity to have both of these family members in here. Uh, David was in Vietnam. He was a helicopter pilot, uh, shot down five times, I believe he said, and got through that and has lived an amazing life with a lot of adventure. And so I think Everest Base Camp, you've sure. hiked uh, the cave in Vietnam, a very successful career. And uh, we met in a pretty unique way at a retreat this last summer. And then found out we're family. Yes, <laughs> that was the unique part. Yeah, yeah, that was really. <laughs> that our wives are cousins. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's awesome. I'm thrilled to meet you, and thank you for coming in. Absolutely. Uh, thanks for, uh, for inviting me. I appreciate it. Awesome. Um, let's start with that era in, in our history. In the late 60s, you were joining the Army. What were the circumstances for you? What made you do that? You mean like, why did I join the Army? Sure. Okay. It's a really unique, I guess it's a unique story. Um, I didn't do very well in high school, but I did graduate, but just barely. <laughs> and um, then uh, went to a junior college in Wharton, Texas. And uh, that, you know, didn't, I wasn't doing very well there either. And I never applied for a deferment to go to college, so I got a draft notice. Mm. And... Um, about that time, I was watching the news one night, and I saw Dan Rather jump off a helicopter in a rice paddy in Vietnam and said, I'm going there. I'm going to go do that. Nice. And uh, so I went to the, uh, the draft office and asked them if I could have a deferment till the end of that semester, and they said, sure, no problem. And I walked out of there, and literally the re Army recruiter was literally next door. And I walked out one door in another door, and he goes, I'm joining up, and I want to go to flight school. <laughs> So you had a plan. <laughs> I did at that point. What was the situation with the draft? Did you wanted to pick what you were going to do. If you had been drafted. Infantry. It was just infantry. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd have been walking with an M16. Yeah. You know, very, very likely. Yeah. And I'd have probably still gone to Vietnam. You know, the very sure. few people. I think the only people, the only people trained at that time that didn't go to Vietnam had, um, you know, relatives that were senators or congressmen or something like that. Imagine that. Yeah, I imagine <laughs> We have a use for you somewhere else. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's cool. And so so you went over, you spoke with the Army recruiter. Well, the Army recruiter, and they sent me to Houston. I lived in Bay City, about 80 miles southwest of Houston. Okay. And um, uh, they sent me to Houston to take a test and get a physical, and it all came back just fine. And they said, okay, we don't really want you because the program is full and for, you know, X number of months, and I forget exactly what, but anyway, it was instead of me having to go as, as a um, draftee in, um, in June, I had to have my whole summer off, and in September, I showed up. In, uh, for flight school. Yeah. Well, actually, yeah, you had to go to basic training first, but, oh, then, yeah. but then flight school in uh, Fort Walters, uh, which is no longer exists, but it's 
you know, 50, 60 miles um, west of Fort Worth. What year was that? Oh, gosh, that's a really good. Let's see. Um, 1969. Wow. Yeah. So the heart of it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. What was the timeline between you go to boot camp, you do your MOS training to them shipping you out? Let's see. Um, 20 months. 20 months. 20 months for the training and all. I mean, boot camp's a couple of months, and then basic flight training is a couple of months, and then Fort Rucker for more advanced and flying turbine helicopters then mm. is uh, is four or five months. And then um, um, Cobra School, uh, which is what I flew for the Cobras. Um, the Cobra School is another couple of months, 10 weeks, something like 20 that. 20 months is quite an investment. Yeah, it is. Yeah, I mean, you know, awesome. they, they, they put a lot of money into into yeah. in, into the training. I mean, those, yeah. those things are expensive just to fly around, and you, you spend a lot of hours in them. Um, you know. Did you feel prepared when you went, when you deployed? When I got on the airplane to go there, I felt prepared. When I got there, I didn't. <laughs> just the illusion of comfort. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, when I, when I, when, when, um, you, I flew into Saigon. They spend a couple of days just getting you, you know, um, time zone acclimated and mm. make sure you brush your teeth and have all your uniforms and stuff like that. And then um, pretty quickly I was shipped off to Quang Tri uh, province, which was on the DMZ. And um, the unit I was with was to lead the um, um, the advance from Quang Tri into Quezon. And, and, you know, the mission is called Lamson 719, and the idea was to cut off the Ho Chi Minh Trail. And so um, the amount of combat within the first two weeks I had been in Vietnam, I mean, in about three weeks, the best friend I ever had in my life was dead. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we had lost, we have a, a contingency of, I, you know, I believe it was eight Cobras. I'm not really sure anymore. I've, I've kind of forgotten that, but we've probably had five replacements by then. Um, you know, more than half had been shot up and damaged. Now, getting shot down means a couple of different things. It means not being able to use that aircraft again or not being able to even get back to the original place or crashing right in, you know, or actually just crash right there on the spot. Yeah. But so, you know, five, shot down five times, but that's, you know, that's what I mean in there. Uh, two of those times were actually on spot, but the other three were. Uh, Where you got hit with uh, something that brought the bird down. Right. <clears throat> one time, one time, um, I, believe, I believe it was a quad 50. <clears throat> and uh, the other time, you know, was an RPG into the tail boom. Um, and those are the crashes. Then the, the times in between, you'd take like another quad 50 or something and would shoot out a hydraulic system. And so you only had so many minutes to get the thing on the ground while it was still flyable or, you know, or something along those lines, you know, the I was, I was watching some stuff on Lamb's son. And like you said, the, the whole purpose was to try and interrupt the Ho Chi Minh trail. And it was also supposed to be like a demonstration for the South Vietnamese to really take over and show that we could do the handover to them. Cause they, I believe were supposed to do all the ground combat we were only giving air support. What was that? You were there for two weeks, right? No, and, I was there for, like, you know, I was in that, that was six weeks. Two weeks was, you know, just the, the introduction to just it. the introduction yeah, phase. That was just, you know, getting shot up and, and, and figuring out. I mean, you know, 
I'd never really been shot at before. Sure. So all of a sudden, the, you know, you're, you're flying along and there's holes in the windshield. And, you know, and all this, you know, the stuff like you watch on TV where you can hear the guy shooting at you, you can't hear it. Yeah, no. It's just the bullet hits the windshield. Yeah. Same thing with flak, the 37-millimeter flak. You know, it took me two days to figure out those little black things that came flying by and burst in the air. I didn't have, I thought, you know, what was, was that a bird or what? So. Um, a big adjustment period. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the um, the Arvins, Army Republic of Vietnam, is what it stands for, it's the good guys. Yeah. Um, they were supposed to penetrate in to Laos, uh, where no Americans were supposed to be on the ground. Yeah. And um, they set up a—they hill 31, and they you know, set up on top of this hill. Um, they had tanks and artillery and things like that. And they were supposed to be some kind of jump-off spot for— the rest of them that were going to move further on and actually interdict the Ho Chi Minh Trail never moved one foot beyond that. Really? Not really. I mean, yes, really. But, <laughs> yes, really. But, but I, I mean, in reality, I mean, you know, they probably tried a couple of times, but then it was, you know, it was, it was, you know, it, it, it wasn't going to happen. I mean, they told us there might be, I mean, we're talking about a large area. You know, from from Quezon all the way into the Ho Chi Minh Trail, and they were telling us that you know there might be as many as three thousand enemy down there. It looked like an ant hill. There must have been thirty thousand, wow. and I'm and I'm probably exaggerating, but I'm sure it looked that way. We flew over this one area, and you know, and you could see vehicles down there and people running around. Hell, it looked like you were just flying over a national park somewhere, and everybody was just out. I mean, there were that many people around. Wow, that that many bad guys, and. Did you do a lot of work in Laos? We did. You know, in that in that period, in that in in that uh, six eight weeks, I'm not sure. I don't remember again exactly. Say, so got there in January and left there in March, so probably eight to ten weeks. Because I know, at least prior to Lam Sun, everything you weren't supposed to be there, right? At least not, especially not on the ground, but but not overtly. But then after Lam Sun, we we were more overt about it because the government was denying doing any operations in Laos. You know, it was in, in, in our point of view and from, from what I saw, um, you weren't, we could fly anywhere we wanted in Laos, okay. in that area. Um, but um, ground troops was, was what they were saying, you know, weren't, right. weren't happening. And it was, it was pretty much true um, okay. that ground troops um, American ground troops weren't there. Now, to really get something done, they were also hiring Cambodian mercenaries. They would mm-hmm. pull in a unit of Cambodian mercenaries to go out on the ground and, and get something done, like rescue down pilots and things like that. You had an experience with that, right? I did. <laughs> tell, me, tell me about that, because when you, when you told me initially, like the hair on the back of my neck stood up, like this is, that must have been a terrifying week. You know, Zach, I've thought about it over the years, and when I knew I was going to come talk to you, I really thought about it. And and I sort of wonder sometimes exactly what I remember exactly. You know, exactly. I know I spent a number of days. I believe it was six nights on the ground, and um, you know, I would you know I would think to myself that I mean you could hear these these NVA soldiers and, uh, uh, and it was mostly NVA soldiers. This was, this was, you know, uh, not the normal peasants that they handed a AK to. Um, 
And what were you doing there? What, what man, was I it? I was that hiding. <laughs> Why were you in Laos, though, with your, like, because you were shot down? We, we, right? were, we were trying to rescue an, uh, uh, an F 4 pilot. A fan, oh. an, an Air, we were trying to rescue an American fighter pilot okay. that had gotten shot down. And so you were sent out there to try to find him? Well, you know, we were sent out there. A Cobra is not equipped to actually carry somebody right. out, but we were the cover for um, some Hueys trying to, you know, trying to go pick him up. Yeah. And um, um, none of that worked out. You know, I, I mean, it, you know, he was just like bait um, to, uh, to, what, you know, to what happened. And then there were a number of us shot down uh, in there. And, um, you know, so... I, I try to remember exactly like which direction did I go to start with, you know. And the only thing I could think of was east, because east was back in South Vietnam. Yeah. And that's the only thing I could think of. The ocean was east and everything. Of course, it was like a hundred and some odd miles away, but so, uh, you know, it was not going to be something I got to real quick. Yeah. Um, but um, um, just, I, you know, I think I remember them walking by like 10 feet away because you could smell their cigarettes and stuff. Really? But it's probably further than that. It just seemed like that, you know. And I'm sure it did. <laughs> <laughs> it seems like they're I, I guess, stepping on your hands. I'm trying, I'm, I'm trying not to exaggerate, I guess. And, but it's sure, it, something sure. that's 52 years ago is hard to remember exactly, sure. you know, what happened. Yeah. You know, and, and so sometimes I want it to be better and sometimes I want it to be, you know, uh, more dramatic, you know. So, <laughs> do you remember the crash? Did you kind of wake up and you're like, "Oh shit, where am I?" See your your because your co-pilot was was, died in the crash, yes. right? Yeah, and I think, you got to get out of the bird. And I remember you saying you had an injury on your leg. I had a cut. Had a cut on my leg, um, and that uh, was bleeding quite a bit. So, um, I don't remember getting out really. Really? You know, I, I, I must have been kind of dazed or something. But, um, you know, I, 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 you know, I do remember the, the Cobras have a, a, a they have a cockpit on top. There's not it's not a door. OK. OK. And so I remember opening, the, you know, the cockpit, the backseat cockpit opened on the right side. And I remember that. But then I don't really remember. Um, very well the first, you know, the first little bit of it other than figuring out that he wasn't coming with me. Yeah. And um, and, and there were, you could hear all kinds of, uh, of gunfire going along, still shooting at other helicopters and stuff, not, not shooting at me and, you know, but I knew they'd be along, you know? yeah. And so, um, and I also knew that, that just as soon as they were sure it was clear, you know, that the Air Force would be bombing that, that Cobra. They, they didn't want, they didn't want the miniguns and things like that to get, sure. to get out. Um, so... And so then it was just really kind of a, of a, um, find a, you know, find big thick brush that nobody ever went in and tried to crawl in there without making any kind of a, of a trail yeah. and, and hide and, and then move. And, and, you know, over time it had radio, it had a, you know, but it's a standard, you know, 121.5, uh, you know, worldwide emergency frequency for aviation and, um, so, I mean, you know, the NVA were listening to that just as much as anybody else. Sure. So you couldn't say, hey, you know, come over here and do this and go that way. I mean, it's just, you couldn't do that. So what was your strategy to get 
recovered. <laughs> How did you? <laughs> Don't get caught. Str- Don't. Strategy. <laughs> strategy is, you know, I, I've never thought about that. I don't know that I had a strategy. Yeah. You know, go east. Just don't die. Go, go, go east, east yeah. and stay hidden. Did you have a weapon with you? I, I did. I did. I had a, a, a 9-11, a 45, and nine rounds. Period. Your final stand. <laughs> oh, God. You know, wow. it was after that. Uh, it was after that that I, you know, I must have looked like Rambo going out there every day because I had an M16 from then on and hand grenades and all kinds of stuff. I would too. But, Hell yeah. I mean, it was brand. I was brand new. I mean, I was. You know, uh, how long had you been in country when that happened? Let's see. That's going to be that's that was after. Um, that was I'd probably been there four, five, five weeks, something like that. Yeah, I was trying to think at it, it, the because I was by that time I was flying back seat, and and if I didn't say it, you know, uh, the front seat's the co-pilot gunner, the back seat is the aircraft commander and pilot. The back seat fired the rockets hmm. that were mounted on fixed pods and a twenty millimeter Vulcan cannon. Um, the uh, front seater was a uh, was the cur- turret guy with a minigun or a pair of miniguns or. A forty millimeter grenade launcher and a minigun, whatever it was. There were two weapons up there, and those 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 were the systems in there. And so, you know, and before that, um, that's not my first time on the ground. Um, before that, um, well, I got to back up a tiny bit. We. Um, that's not where you want to be as a pilot is on the ground. No, you're just not. <laughs> well, okay, but I, I did this one voluntarily. Okay. Uh, on the on the first time, um, we flew as a um, uh, what they call a pink team or a hunter killer team, mm-hmm. and we used two light. You know, we we were our, our normal mission was two Cobras, two uh, OH sixes, which was light observation helicopters, and then one H model Huey was the command and control up high, um, and so that was that was. I never did it with them because I didn't get there before that, but that was the way the unit was set up to do, and that that was over after the first two days because yeah. you didn't have you didn't have to have anybody search for the enemy. They were all over the place. Yeah, they were lots of. That was the theory. That that was well, yeah. and and it's what we went back to. It's what the unit went back to after we left there and went back to the other place. We were kind of a roving cab troop. You know, we we went into areas and you know, we'd go into. You know, we were in in what's called two corps, the second part of Vietnam. You know, there's I corps, two corps, three and four, um, and uh, we were in two corps, and um, so Pleiku, Docto, uh, part of the Asha Valley, yeah. stuff like that, um, were you know in places, and so we would get moved to those places to to try to you know if they thought there was a buildup coming along or something. Is what later went on, but earlier on, like only a couple weeks after I'd been there, the um, um, the command and control ship, which was flying up high, got got hit, and it's a four man crew. Uh, two of them were wounded. One was ambulatory. The other one would have been surgical. And so they went down. And um, I'm not sure. Uh, I talked. I was in the front seat. I was a co-pilot gunner, and I could and you could see they were they were under stress and a lot of. Um, they just was they weren't thinking correctly. Mm. So I got him to let me out. He hovered over some tall grass and I jumped out. Wow. And what did you do then? I didn't know exactly where they went at first. So I made my way to their downed helicopter and we were taking some rounds, taking some fire. And so first time in my life I ever shot an M sixty. So I grabbed their M sixty that was mounted on the about the seven o'clock position 
and and shooting back in the trees. It only took me seemed like to me it took forever, but it only took a few seconds of me shooting that direction for the for the gunships to realize what I was doing that yeah. there were some people shooting at us. Yeah, and so the gunships took care of it then. So. Then I grabbed up an M16 and followed the trail. And in in um, elephant grass, you can't hide where you've been. I mean, it it, yeah. it makes a trail. Yeah. And so I figured out where they were, and um, and just you know got to them and and helped get everything straightened out. The um, the one the one that was injured in the ambulatory, we got into my seat out of the Cobra. The guy that you know that guy you know should have gotten you know all kinds of stuff for doing that. Um, uh, but anyway, he hovered over, and we got him in that, and so he flew them back to a, a um, to the hospital, and um, so you put one of the wounded into your seat in the Cobra, right? And then the had one him that could evacuate. still walk a little bit, yeah. You, could, you know, I mean, he was shot in the leg and foot, wow. you know, and uh, but he could still get around enough. The other one was was unconscious and had lost a lot of blood, and um, so. Um, you know, I got to him and got a tourniquet, you know, and, and, and the injury is so high and, you know, it's a femoral injury, so it didn't work out real well. Yeah. But, uh, and then we stayed down there about another, I don't know, seems like forever to me, but I mean, probably 10 or 15 minutes and, and they were able to get another helicopter in to get us out wow. and everything. So, and there was no more, once, once I got to them and the other gunships were, were then, I mean, they were, they were shooting a circle around us and, we weren't bothered anymore by by the bad guys there. I got a silver star for that. Wow. Yeah. For, they thought, you know. <laughs> that was a hell of a decision to make. I don't know too many people jump out of the helicopter and go onto the ground. Um, you know, I didn't, I didn't think twice about it. Yeah. I just did it. It's amazing. I mean, I guess when you're that age and you're in that zone, you just see what needs to be done and you do it. Like, you can't think about it, right? You can't. Yeah. You really can't. You just you just do it. You, you know, you really do. So. so that was five weeks into your yeah. time in Vietnam. Something like that. Yeah, no, I mean, that jumping out and doing that, that was in the first two weeks. Wow. Because that was, that was when I was still flying front seat gunner because, you know, shortly, a week or two after that, we had lost so many people that, that we were flying the front seat gunner in non-Cobra qualified pilots. Really? So just anybody you can get in the bird that can pull a trigger and fly it. You know, well, you know, I mean, the problem with a Cobra, if you're in the front seat, there were joysticks like this. They were like this tall. Mm. So as opposed to moving a normal stick where, you know, it's a basic five-to-one ratio. And so it's really, really hard to fly from the front seat. Wow. Um, you can do it. I mean, don't get me wrong. You can you could do it. But uh, they just, you know, um, we were putting... Loach pilots, the um, light observation helicopter pilots in the front seat to just to, you know, man the turret and the, and the chunker, chunk 40 millimeter grenade launcher. Yeah. What was the strategy that y'all were using as pilots? I know you said that you came in and the, the unit was running with a, like a Huey up top, kind of controlling right. everything. And you said y'all were 150 feet off the ground flying At 100 the knots. Like what? What would talk to me okay. about that strategy? Okay. Why that was working? The whole thing fell apart almost immediately. They kept trying to make it work where they would move beyond that one hill. Where they moved into this one hill, and, and it was they called it Hill Thirty One, 
And they moved into this one hill and set up a base in there, uh, the Arvins did. And the goal was that um, from that base, they would then venture out and interdict the Ho Chi Minh Trail. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it it became, for us, it became nothing but keeping the road open between Vietnam and Hill 31. That that became our only thing. We didn't really go further than that. Uh, I mean, now and then, yes, but not much. Protecting our own Ho Chi Minh Trail. Right. <laughs> exactly. A good way to put it. Excellent way to put it. Yeah. So uh, in our own Ho Chi Minh Trail. So, you know, that's that's what we did. And so the light observation helicopters were eliminated from the thing. And so it was just Cobras and um, and sometimes only Cobras. Would would go in because they had some you know they had some tanks and then uh, um, they had they had a lot of people and so they were making it where a truck couldn't get through for supplies or anything to that. I'm talking about the NVA was yeah and and so we would go in and you know and just you know try to try to make the the road passable um, with uh, and and I'm not talking about holes in the road. I'm talking about people shooting at them. Sure. Um, so that became our that became our only mission, mini mission to that. Focusing on that, right? Yeah, that's that's all. And then finally, it was finally they just gave up and realized it was not going to happen. That y'all y'all were going to maintain it, or they gave up? No. I don't know who decided that the Arvins were not going to move beyond that uh-huh. and interdict the, the 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 basic goal was not going to be achieved. Yeah. And uh, no matter how much you talked to her and and understand I was a warrant officer so I didn't I didn't I don't get top sure. level discussions sure uh, I think it was a it was planned to be a 90 day operation and it was pretty well established at the 60 day point that it was it was a failure that's work. correct yeah. I think more activity picked up through the Ho Chi Minh Trail just to support you know the NVA's right uh, side of the war and I saw or at least a book that I read about how they managed that trail was was pretty Phenomenal. impressive. Incre- like, very impressive. They had multiple checkpoints along the way, and so like if you blew up a, a bulldozer at checkpoint ten, they didn't bring another bulldozer from one. They brought the one from nine, and everything just bumped down one, and they only had to move one. Up. And, it, uh, and and that's how they kept the whole thing. It would be down for a day. It was two, incredible. And it would be right. I mean, back it was down. incredible about the fact that you could fly right over it, and not see it. Mm. You know, I mean, unless you, you you could track it, but you couldn't really find it most of the time. Wow. Uh, it was it was pretty. It was, I mean, it's, you know, even though like because it wasn't just on foot. Like they were moving vehicles. And yes. Things. Yeah. No, I'm not talking about just on foot. I'm talking about moving vehicles. Yeah. And things through. You know. Maybe it sounds strange, but I mean, I really got to where I respected my enemy. Uh, no, the, the, we weren't we weren't fighting people who who didn't understand what they were doing. For sure, at all. For sure, I felt that way in Iraq a few times, seeing the ingenuity and the things that they would come up with for IED triggers, mm-hmm. or you know, they weren't dumb. At least not after the first year or two. I figured all the dumb ones got killed. <laughs> <laughs> it was just the yeah. smart guys that were left. Oh, uh, um, what else? What else can you tell me about that deployment? I, you know, honestly, the 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 most um, 
I'm going to call it the most exciting. The most exciting part was that couple of months in Lamson 719. But, you know, there were a lot of other things. I mean, after that, because that started my thing, that started my 12 months there. So I had 10 more months of of uh, um, what I'm going to call our normal, uh, our, our normal, you know, hunter killer uh, in a free fire zone. I mean, we would get a box and, uh, and, and go find somebody to fight with. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we did that six days a week. Um, so there were numerous aircraft shot down. There were numerous people get killed in that in period of time, but it all became such a normal everyday thing that not people getting shot down or killed, but I mean, it became a normal everyday thing that you would, you would, you would find somebody to, that was willing to fight with you. Yeah. And, and, um, wasn't hard to pick a fight. It was not, it was not difficult to pick a fight at all. And, you know, um, the thing is they were, they were pretty much ready because if they had a new free fire zone, they would drop pamphlets. The, the air force would drop, you know, C-130 would drop, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of pamphlets saying, yeah. you know, this is going to become, you know, I don't know what language they use. I can't read Vietnamese, but uh, this is going to, you know, become a free fire zone basically. And, you know, and if, everybody get out. Right. Wow. And so if they were still there, they were well prepared for you. Yeah. So they kind of knew where to expect you as Absolutely. well. Absolutely. Man, we see thing in the world. Like, Can you just, imagine? You know, I remember in Fallujah, uh, either Fallujah or Karma when we were sleeping through finding pamphlets where I was like, well, how are we supposed to like, we're going through all this effort to try to sneak in and like, you know, and it's like, there's flyers saying, Hey, we're coming on this date. There you go. What the fuck? And, and I mean, that's, that's what I'm talking about. It's just, that's, that's what it, that's what it was like. I mean, we don't seem to learn from this stuff very well, very well at all. Rinse and repeat. Yes. Yeah. What was the morale like for you guys? Was everybody? Um, if I call it dead flat, you know, because see now if somebody's really seriously injured or something, it's my understanding that, that it, it doesn't really become a secret or something. It doesn't, you know, they, they're gone one day and, and, you know, people might say, Hey, you know, God, we're sorry to so, but you know, or, you know, he's, he's going to be okay or something. We didn't get any of that, you know. Really? I mean, if somebody got hurt one day and we're gone, you never heard about it again. So it, it was just really, it was really pretty, pretty. Just didn't speak about it. No, mm. not at all. I know you mentioned that you didn't, you didn't make a lot of friends. You didn't in that time. You didn't, you know, you didn't, you didn't at all. I mean, you make maybe one or two that that you you talk to. I mean, uh, my roommate. Uh, you know, uh, Michelle DeVoe, he was a, um, he was a loach driver and, uh, um, you know, I mean, we got to be friends. I mean, you know, hell, we slept in the same room yeah. and, um, and, and we're not talking about, you know, this room would make three of our rooms. Hmm. And so, uh, you're not talking about spaced out a lot. Yeah. Um, and you know, he was, he was seriously injured and, um, um, ended up being shipped home, uh, so, and I've seen, I saw him, and you know, after that, he he's passed away now, but uh, he had he had uh, he had cancer. So, um, I mean, I, you know, I can I can think of the places like you know, like you go to, you go to Docto, which Docto was a really bad place, and there we were supporting the special forces. Um, there were because it was basically Docto is mountains mountains on three sides, and. Um, 
No. So a big valley then? Yeah. Well, <clears throat> more like a box canyon. Okay. More than anything else. Um, and do we have a base there? Not really. You know, I mean, there were, you know, there were some special forces camps here and there that didn't have really all that many people. And if, if they were about to get overrun or something, or, or they were, you know, they, they would call in us. They, they were mostly sneaking around. Hmm. Um, and, um, but if they, you know, if they got into a problem where there was more than they expected or, or they got seen or whatever, for whatever reason, we would get the call to, you know, to go do that. And, and it was the same, same kind of thing at a bunch of different places. I mean, most of the time we operated um, out of, you know, just, just uh, northwest of a, of a place called a Bonson Pass, which is going along the coastal road, which is Highway 1. Um, there was a uh, through, through there. And there were just a lot of weapons moved through that. And, you know, we did that a lot. Talk to me about some of the shenanigans that y'all pulled. Because I remember, <laughs> I remember a, a few little stories that, because that you're still oh, 19, geez, 20 you know, years old, um, right? We're still sure, sure. heads, right? 21 like, by the end. We're having yeah, a good yeah. time. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, let's see. Michelle, De, M- Michelle okay. DeBoe and I, we had an air-conditioned room. Yeah, how did you yeah, acquire that? Nobody else did. <laughs> You know, he and I he and I managed that out of a you know Phuket Air Base wasn't far away from us, and when we were over there refueling and rearming one time, we saw all these air conditioners in crates. Nice. And so one night we went nice. and got one. You know, um, you got after a while, you know, you mm. got tired of eating sea rations. You know, which you look at them and in in some of the some of that stuff was canned in the late nineteen mm. forties. You know, so you, you know you're talking about thirty year old you know eggs in a can. And, you know, and, and to make that survive, I mean, it is, it's yeah. 50% eggs, 50% salt. And, you know, so, you know, so MREs were, you know, if they became visible somewhere, maybe we would work on oh, yeah. getting, we pulled some getting those. A few times you know? as well. We had the running joke <laughs> that there's yeah. ever only been one thief in the Marine Corps and everyone else is just trying to get their shit back. <laughs> like... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and that's a good way to look at it. You know, I mean, this stuff's sitting around and, you know, so you just, you just yeah. kind of go, you know, just kind of go get it. And um, yeah. uh, nobody that's ever good. said anything. So that's good. I'm not sure that they really gave a damn. We got into some trouble other, stealing so. Gatorades yeah. and, and like muffins because we were running missions out of Arupa and on this little fob. And we're the only platoon that was leaving to go do things. And all the guys sitting back either working in the offices or whatever it was that they did would have all these stashes of food and water and drinks and all these things. And we're over here, like you said, eating MREs and bullshit. And I'm like, screw these guys. And so it gets dark. You cut a few locks, you, you know, move some chains around and you, you know, come up with an air conditioner. (laughs) And it, yeah, and it, it's it's you know yeah, I mean yeah. I never looked at it as a thief. It's all you know? of ours. I, mean, I really I really didn't. It belonged to it belonged to yep. the U.S. military, and, and so did I. And yep. so we went you know hand in hand, and and so um, you know and and I mean it was interesting rewiring our little room to where it would handle that an air conditioner, but sure. that was you know I'm sure it we, was. We had it one well. window unit yep. in a room on the Jordanian border. But there was no electricity in the rest of the building. It was just this one little room. And uh, they called me MacGyver for like a week. 
is I ended up taking a bunch of MRE boxes apart, duct taping in to make an air-conditioned duct, and stringing it from the ceiling uh -huh. with 550 cord to get it back into our room where everybody slept. And that was a game changer. Well, I, I tell you, I'm not surprised with your Mag MacGyver uh, after I watched oh, yeah. your uh, Naked and Afraid. It had yeah, to be you done. You a lot of stuff on that. was getting done for me. <laughs> I thought that was pretty, I thought that was pretty interesting. Was a good time. Yeah. Did y'all go through some jungle survival training for, for all that? Did you use any of that? You did go through that. Was it really useful? No. No. No, it was just, I think it was check a box, yeah. you know, to, to get the E&E &E, um, stuff, you know, in there. Did you go through SEER as part of pilots? Not really. Not really? No. Wow. You know, um, you're just winging it. Pretty much. Wow. You know, but, I mean, hiding is not something you got to really learn. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we do it as a kid. Hide you and know, seek, yeah. right? So it it was kind of something that you – it's come kind of natural. You know, the idea of going someplace where nobody has been, there's not a trail. Um, yeah. I mean, you got to stay off trails and things yeah. like that. you got to get into – The thick. Yes. Right. Yeah. And there's lots of thick there. I bet. Was I mean, it pretty it's a, triple it's a canopy tropical jungle? jungle. Yeah. yeah. Now, where there's not a lot of thick is, is you know, where the canopy is. You know, there's double and triple canopy. There's just no sunlight. Right. So nothing grows in the jungle no. floor then. Like that. Yeah. But wow. that's not, you know. That's a high-stakes game of hide-and-seek that it you're is. playing, though. Yes. Mm. So, but you said you had a, a cut on your leg. How did you fix that? With a, um, um, with a, a little fishing kit. Because I kept bleeding out of that, and a little um, um, string and a and a fish hook, just sewed yourself up. Just you know, a couple of little pieces, and then it quit bleeding as much. And so, wow, oh, you know, that's hardcore. I I thought it was necessary. That's what it is. You do what you got to do, right? You no, know? yeah, because I I kept thinking it would quit bleeding and quit, you know, and and of course you know you can cover your tracks a lot, but not when it's not when you're dripping blood dripping here and blood, there. Blood, yeah. Were they using dogs or anything? No, or? no. no they'd have Good found thing. me. They'd have yeah. found me in a heartbeat with that. Good thing, you know. Stinky and, Americans. And, you know, they weren't. I don't think the people really looking for me. I think the, I don't think the people walking around were really that. You know, they're going like, "Hey, he could be anywhere around here." So they were not real. They didn't have all day. Yeah. Searching. Yeah. Yeah. They they didn't. They were they, they you know they they weren't just really looking really hard yeah. or anything. You said there were some other pilots that y'all were going to rescue someone. Yes. There were some other uh, well, we still had the Air Force pilot down that, there. Were you able to link up with anyone? You know, how did you get towards the up? end? Okay, you know, towards 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 the last day or two, the last day really. Um, How'd you, know, you know how to link up with them? You know, Are y'all doing in, in, radio windows? You know, in in talking on the radio, you know, you could kind of get a direction to go. Um, you know, by by the you know a helicopter they don't know exactly where I am either because I can't tell them that sure you know but you know you get people you know you get them flying from the area we're in back to where you know a direction kind of they want us to go and 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 I keep saying go east you know uh, I knew that there was a river to the east okay and so when you found the river you know get to the river and then figure out you know whether you go north or south on the river. Big uh, landmarks, big to small. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And so who rescued you? Um, basically the Air Force in okay. in uh, uh, one of their Jolly Green Giants. You know, they're, they're basically their rescue aircraft. 
Uh, and a helicopter, yep. they're able to mm-hmm. drop yep. down and pick you up. Yep. Um, wow. um, they did that. Um, and you know, they, they basically got us into an area and, you know, by that time we had some weapons, um, other weapons besides nine rounds in a, in a 45 that was probably worn out. So you came across some, some other, dro- you know, they dropped stuff to us. Oh, wow. by the time we got to that river, they dropped stuff to us. Okay. Yeah. When we were nice. kind of together and then, you know, and then the, how many of you were there? Seven. Wow. Um, and, uh, you know, then, the, um, the area was well protected by gunships and things like that. Where okay. Keeping everybody guns. away. Yeah. How long and at, would you get sick or anything like that? Or they bring you to the hospital, check out your leg, admire your stitching abilities, <laughs> give you a bandage. Um, and there's a there's there was a um, there was a mash unit, you know, which a lot of people don't understand mash, but mash is a Merville Armor Surgical Hospital, and yeah. there was a mash unit there, and um, um, then you know they took out my stitches and put some other ones in, some and, real ones. And here we go. I mean, they didn't have enough. There were not enough pilots around. To have something like that be a reason to not like give you a week off? No. Yeah. I, so you're right back in the air. Yeah. Do you think that was good or bad? Sometimes I feel like getting too much time to think about it just gets me into my own head. Like, let's let me move on. Or, or were you? How'd you feel about that? You know, Zach, I didn't. Somehow I was able to just never think about it until about the last three weeks I was in Vietnam. Mm. And at that point I went, I was kind of like, you know what? I don't really want to do this anymore. You know, I don't want to get killed, you know, three weeks from going home. Yeah. And I was an instructor pilot in Cobras Mm. and every 90 days, a Cobra pilot needed a, um, a check ride. Uh, practicing engine out, tail rotor failures, you know, things like that, other different system failures. And um, so um, I just did check rides for, you know, the last few weeks. I, you know, and, and I was the only Cobra IP in that, in, in, in a fairly large area, more units than just the one I was in. Yeah. And so, you know, and they, and they knew that. And so um, Colonel Anderson, who was the, basically the commander of that entire area. Um, he was, co- he was Cobra qualified, but he would only go fly with me. And, and I don't mean that as derogatory to him, except he only got to fly a couple times a month. Mm. And so, you know, and to go fly in a combat zone a couple times a month, you know, you're thinking more about flying. Well, those things became no different than putting on your pants. Yeah. You know, once you put them on, you don't think about them anymore. That part just became natural because the fighting part didn't. Yeah, it's an extension of your body it at is. that point. It, it is. I bet. And so, but uh, anyway, uh, anyway, he he had, he was the one that said, why don't you just give check rides? No. Yeah, I think that would be almost more dangerous to only put him out a couple of times a month to where he can't make it second nature. He, and, and he didn't go, he didn't go looking for a fight. Yeah. You know, I mean, he and I would go fly around and, um, you know, cheat rockets into the ocean, you know, if you saw like fishing yeah you saw, <laughs> you saw some you know sharks okay. you know not not for you know because you could see it i mean right off the coast there yeah you know which was not far from where we were and we you know you could shoot rockets into the ocean or you know shooting at sharks yeah that's you know? funny or there was a there was this one mountaintop not far away that had 
you know, you ever see these these kind of structures where it's almost like a ball on top of a tee. It's like a golf ball on top of yeah. a tee remaining there. And, and we were trying to get that to roll down the hill, you know, shoot at that, shoot rockets at that. Shenanigans. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and so he, you know, and, and he was a great guy. He was a, he was a really, really nice guy. And, and I liked him. And, uh, and so, um, yeah, I mean, he, you know, that's a little bit of flying he did. But the only reason I'm bringing him up is he was the one that kind of hooked up with, hey, you know, go give check rides to these other Cobra units that I'm responsible for. Yeah. And so he would tell them and they go, okay, yeah, we need so-and-so, so-and-so, and so-and-so to have a check ride. Okay, fine. You that's know, good. I'll do two a day. Yeah, I think you certainly served your time, earned that. I, you know? Absolutely. And I, I understand that mindset. And I appreciate you saying that. I, sometimes I don't think so, but yeah. I oh, no, that. absolutely. And we all kind of, when you get there, you're you're nervous, you're excited, you're trying to feel out, like, what's, what's this deployment going to be like? What are the strategies we're using against them? What are they using against us? How's this go? And then, like you said, those last couple weeks, you're like, Man, I hope nothing stupid. Like I've been through so much in this, and I've done dumbass things, right? And I've gotten away with a yes. lot of things. Like I might actually pull this off and not get killed here. Let's not do so many dumbass things, right? And I felt that every deployment that I did as well, because you do go in with you have to, you have to kind of dump it at the door and commit to what you're doing. So you've done, you did a lot more deployments than I did. I mean, I only did one. And I mean, it was a year long, thirteen months, um, but year long. And oh, um, my shock! That Lamson Seven One Nine, first time I rode, you know, in a Cobra in Vietnam and wow. crossed the border, you know, into Laos, ran right down the um, DMZ into into Quezon, and then crossed that border. I was like, I have no clue, you know. I mean, I had spent. You know, I don't know, 14, 15 months, something like that, you know, six, 18 months altogether, you know, in flight school. Well, you know, and you, did you shoot rockets? Yeah, you shoot rockets at immobile targets. Right. That didn't shoot back. Right. And all of a sudden, somebody's shooting back. Yeah, two way range is very different. It is. Yeah. And, 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 you know, and I had no idea. And so I got, I got a real good initiation with, yeah. with that. Um, yeah. The, the documentary I was watching about that said there was, right at a 50-50 chance of who came back and who didn't. I think that's pretty accurate. Yeah. I mean, if you if you if you go like a Wikipedia and see the number of aircraft lost in that is incredible. I think it was a at least the one I was it was 174 aircraft that were destroyed. Yes. And like another couple hundred that were damaged. Yes. But it was hard to calculate cuz they'd get shot up every time they went out. So it was, you know. There were people they had people sitting there, you know, like you know, on the, for holes in windshields, you know, just take a little piece of plexiglass and glue it on over the hole. Um, mm. And, you know, I mean, and, and, and the Cobra's a canopy. So, you know, you got glass all around you. Right. And, uh, you know, and it's just like plexiglass. I mean, it's not bulletproof at all. Right. And, and the other thing is just, you know, the, the, the rounds that came through the tail boom or through the, through the cockpit or something like that. Um, Was there any armor on the Cobra? Your seat? Anything? Seat. The seat is the seat is armored. Okay. Um, it is, and Protect your ass at least. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> About and, it. And honestly, the um, <laughs> yeah, this is a funny story. the The side armor is um, is fixed, and okay. so, but the seat comes up and down. All mm. right. So, 
when I first got there, I would like to see, you know, what was going on and everything. And my head would be up. I mean, that armor would be down to here. By the time I left, I had to stretch my neck to see around that armor. I mean, I had that seat all the way at the bottom, and that armor Hell was all yeah. the way up to here. Hell yeah. <laughs> you know, um, but yeah, you know, I don't I don't know what I, I had thought about. It. I actually tried to, you know, I did um, apply to actually stay in, in Vietnam for another six months when I was there. Um, Why did you want to do that? The, the unit I was with had almost all new people, mm. and they were having, they were making mistakes and having problems and things like that. And I know it sounds ridiculous, but I felt somewhat responsible that, that I needed, I needed to be there to kind of, you know, at least teach them a little bit. Sure. Um, so, but I'm not sure why the army, you know, they, at that time they totally quit anybody who wanted to do an extension. Really? Yeah. And I don't get why. I don't really know. I don't really understand that. Hmm. Um, but they had just basically stopped all extensions. Yeah, I think that a lot of people feel that sense of responsibility. I I did. Um, my last tour, I would have gone home about three months into it. But you start working with guys. You start training with them. You, you deploy with them. You're running missions with them. There was a sense like, man, if I go home and something happens, I had the opportunity to at least finish this out. Everybody come home together. Like, let's conclude it as a team. There was that sense of responsibility to each other. And a lot of guys, I ended up doing four years and four months just to finish that last mm -hmm. tour. And I think a lot of guys did that because of that sense of responsibility, like you're saying. You know, the other thing is, for me, um, because I was such a poor student in high school and um, it had no self-confidence when I went there, but did when I was there after a mm. while realized that I, I actually was not a dumbass like my, mm. everybody told me I was. And, um, you were somebody over there. You, well, I felt confident there. I knew what I was doing every day. Yeah. I knew exactly what I was supposed to do. And I did not have confidence in, in, um, um, in coming back home, mm. uh, in what, you know, what it was going to be like. I mean, cause you could read, you know, I mean, it, it took a month to get there, but my mom would send me, uh, uh, you know, a Sunday paper every now and then. And you could read what's going on with the... Um, um, Sorry about that. <laughs> but, but you my could, phone goes off. <laughs> <laughs> you could read what's going on in, you know, in the uh, anti-war protesters and everything. Um, you know, and, and uh, just before I left, uh, you know, this my high school girlfriend, the first person I ever really totally fell in love with is explaining to me, she's a year older than me and, and going to school at Trinity in San Antonio. And she explained to me how um, she is working with a group to interrupt the blood supply at a Bamsey, um, mm -hmm. which was what is now called Bamsey. It wasn't really called Brook Army. I mean, it was Brook Army Medical Center then, but it was nothing like what it is today. And, you know, so she was a protester. Yes. Wow. And, and so, but I mean, a protester, with a sign or a flag or something like that's one thing. But when you attempt to cut off the blood supply or limit the blood supply to the facility that took the vast majority of uh, American soldiers injured in Vietnam, I mean, so really, truly, what are you doing? Yeah. I mean, your goal is to end a war. Okay, fine, that's your, that's your right. But you're ending it by, you know, 
advancing the injury or killing other, you know, additional Americans. Anyway, that's that's the way I look at it now. She and I obviously aren't friends. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's some treasonous shit right there. Well, um, it's 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 either it's either murder or attempted murder. One of the two. Absolutely, that's exactly the way absolutely. I look at it. And who was that woman, Jane, that went Fonda. to yeah. Jane Fonda? Yeah, yeah. Now she did anybody something. but a well-known actress would have gone to jail over that. I mean, that would have, you know, that would have come back to the United States. and would That's have been, pure evil. It, it, you know, it was. I read the, the story of her when she went to, to visit um, the POW camp in Hanoi, yeah. and one of the POWs gave her a letter or a message, and she turned around and gave it to the VC and reported him for trying to pass her a note to get back to U.S. forces or... Or families. Yeah, I, I I did not know that, but I'm not surprised. Oh, I hope I'm speaking right on that. I'm pretty sure that was what I remember. I, I, I have from no her doubt that that's and... that's. I want to be really honest with you. I did try. I tried not to really read back on stuff like that. Yeah, really, probably a good thing. You know, it's yeah. um, um, in a way, the army and and Vietnam made what I was able to do later in my life. Mm-hmm. But. You know, you know, you know this. Combat changes you. It changes you as a person for the remainder of your life. At least in my case, it has. And we'll talk a little bit more about you know what I've done about that yeah. later in this. But uh, it really does. Absolutely. What was the culture at back home like when you came home from that? Um, don't tell anybody where you've been. And you know, with some of my best friends, I remember getting off of. Um, the uh, getting off the airplane, we flew back into Seattle. And um, then from Seattle, I got a flight from Seattle to Houston, you know, where my parents and my brother were going to pick me up. And the uh, Houston has really long walkways down to, to their the area where the airplanes are parked. And, you know, I mean, they're just really long, almost a tunnel looking thing. And I remember just, it was really weird, but walking up that and it whooped because it's uphill back, um, back towards the main part of the terminal where people would meet me, um, everybody would get over to the other side. I mean, I had you know, I had half of that whole aisle to myself. They knew they knew who you – I guess they knew who you were. I mean, I'm in jungle boots. And, had you showered? Yeah, once. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you didn't stink. No, I didn't stink. Oh. Nobody could smell me. I didn't, I didn't stink. But, man, you know, I guess, I mean, you got a dark tan – you know, you look like a raccoon because you wore sunglasses all the time. Mm. And, you know, um, you don't look like your average American soldier that's just going from one place to another. You look like you belong in a jungle. Yeah. Uh, you look feral. You did. You know, and maybe it's the way I looked. I mean, my brother walked up and goes, God, your eyes are different. You've, you've, your eyes have changed color, you know. Wow. And, um um, and that was when they were picking me up. So, you know, you you did things like that. And then, then um, you know, um, Wayne Harvey, a friend of mine in high school, you know, and I called him there, and we were going to go see some of our old high school friends. So he said, don't tell anybody where you've been. Well, didn't they all know, though? They just didn't want to hear about it? Probably. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, um, I'm not sure. They, you know, actually, come to think about it, there was there's a couple that I saw, you know, a few years ago that went, well, what did you do after, you know, after you graduated from high school? And I went, well, I went to Vietnam. How about you? 
and, you know, they were, they said, well, I didn't know you did that. You know, wow. so, so I, but I, I imagine most of them did. Yeah. I guess y'all didn't have Facebook to post it back then. No, there was no Facebook. <laughs> there was no Facebook. There was no cell phones. There was no, David like graduated yeah. and disappeared for a yeah. year. Yeah. yeah. And I and and I I don't know I mean I came home and uh, uh, and I went back to Bay City where my parents were I had a thirty day leave and um, it was it was very interesting because my mother I remember my mother having a bridge club and and uh, and I you know with a bunch of ladies around and I walked through the house and and it got really quiet mm. I mean there's a bunch of ladies talking do you think people were afraid of you I do. In fact, I didn't really think of that until Friday. Really? Wednesday. Wednesday last week. A week it'd be a week ago tomorrow. I um um was I had two guys that I'd been to dental school with that I hadn't seen in forever. You know, how we got hooked up, I'm not really sure, but I said and, and we all lived in the same neighborhood. We didn't even know it. And I said, hey, why don't you guys, you know, let's go over to Maudie's and have, you know, eat dinner. so we went over there. And one of them said, do you realize how scared the rest of the class was of you? And this is after the, this is after I got out of the Army and I was in dental school. Wow. And, and I said, well, no, why? And he goes, well, you know, everybody was just, you know, said even, even the professors were, you know, different to you as mm-hmm. compared to anybody else. And I said, I didn't notice that. But he said, yeah, yeah, they were all scared of you. So. You know, that's the only thing that made that's why I was able to answer that. I never yeah. thought about that. I never thought about people being scared of me, but I guess that's what it was. I experienced that out of the Marine Corps as well. Um, particularly one of the firemen I worked with told me I almost didn't get the job because one of the chiefs was afraid of that I would fly off the deep end or have some emotional breakdown or was, you know, volatile in some way that nobody could calculate and I would, you know, I don't know, go on a killing spree or something. Yeah, and it was it was an interesting thing to hear because like like what? Yeah, why <laughs> why would he think that? You know, but I think it's you know people don't. And I experienced some isolation from my own family, where everyone was just real quiet, was wasn't sure how to communicate with me, which kind of increased some of the isolation that I felt when I came home because you know I left. I was eighteen. High school, my cousins lived next door. Everybody, you know, we would have parties and everyone was very social. And then, you know, I come back four years later and it's very surreal. It's like, I, I know this place, but I don't feel a part of it anymore. You know, I mean, it's funny you say that because um, I understand that. Um, I have a brother and sister. My brother's two years younger than me and my sister is six years younger than I am. Well, my sister was still at home when I came home from Vietnam mm. and she didn't want anything to do with me at all. Wow. No, my brother, uh, he was in college and is, you know, he was, he was okay with it. You know, he was okay with who I was. He wasn't, he wasn't afraid of me at all. I think my sister might've been. Was and, it just the public perception of the war? I that, think so. Yeah. I mean, you know, we had had Kent State, you know, with, you know, with uh, National Guard shooting a bunch of people at Kent State, at Kent State oh, University. Yeah. I remember So we'd that. had Kent State, yep. you know, um, we had, um, you know, there were, there was the picture of that girl, you know, running, you know, in Quang Tree with the napalm. You know, there was, you know, all kinds of stuff like that. And and it's, you know, the anti-war um, had become a significant part of the daily life. Yeah. And, you know, the atrocities and the people killed and stuff like that. 
And so, you know, and, and Vietnam veterans were labeled baby killers. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and I think, I think I've often, I've tried to figure out where that came from. I think a lot of it had to do with, you know, hunter killer missions where you get a free fire zone and kill everything in it. Yeah. Elephants, water buffalo, whatever. Yeah. That can aid the enemy. And, you know, so. Um, it's also like the worst thing they could think to call you. Right. Right. Yes. So that's what they go. And yeah. that's, there's some shock value in that as well, because nobody wants to do that. Um, and it was a dumbasses, like on a, on a, you know, one, one guy, you know, one crew chief, not even a pilot, you know, on the, on the bell house, you know, of the, the, uh, of Cobra, you know, painted on there, aim low for kids. I'm like, yeah. yeah, you know, and I mean, it only lasted a couple of days, but there were a lot of pictures of it. No doubt. It only takes one. Yes. Yeah. Which, yeah, makes it to the Time magazine or some shit. Yeah. That's the insurgent war. I mean, they, they hide among the population. I feel like Vietnam kind of showed the world how to beat us and how to play the how to play the game against us in a way that our own rules. Well, I I, I totally agree with you, and I'm sorry I interrupted you. No, but no, no. But, I, but you know, I mean, they don't have any other way to fight. Yeah. I mean, this is again where I became you know to to where I respected me first. I think if you respect your enemy, you won't underestimate them. It, sure. And you can you got a better chance of living if you don't underestimate somebody shooting at you. For sure. <laughs> and um, so I think that um, I think that has a that that had you know a lot to do with it. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you have people like us who had gunships and helicopters to move your people and trucks and bombers and things like that, and you're fighting against it, they freaking won. Yeah. You know, they in the end they won yeah. over all of that. And I felt very similar in Iraq because just looking around, if I had been born there, I'd have been an insurgent a thousand percent. Yeah. Some invading force came in and they took over my town and they're telling everybody what to do with the threat of gunpoint. My mischievous little ass would have been putting bombs in the road and throwing hand grenades off of buildings and for probably just lack of anything else to do because there was nothing for them to do. But mess with us, and and before and, that, okay. I mean, don't get me wrong. Saddam Hussein was a, was not a good guy. Sure, I'm, I'm not I'm not saying that at all. Absolutely. But prior to us invading Iraq, they went to college. Mm-hmm. They traveled around the world. You know, they had passports and could travel and come back and stuff yeah. like that. You know, they had new cars and gasoline and houses and air conditioning and all this kind of stuff. I mean, you know, seriously, they had a, a dictator for you know, and and you had to have you know, 100% uh, loyalty to that dictator and that regime. But other than that, they lived fairly decent lives. Right. And it went downhill. Yeah. And and so, um, and I understand what we did. I understand why we did it. I understand that, you know, that's, that, that the, the thought behind it, but um, still. Um, For the Iraqis on the ground, it's no different. No, I mean, you, it's not. You came in and you took my country right. over. Right, and, and you. I'm like <laughs> you. You invade if if you were occupying part of you know the United States, yeah. would I do all that stuff? If if I had absolutely, I Hell would yeah. go out of my way to learn how to most damage you. Absolutely, for doing that. Yeah. 
you know, I, I think it's human nature. And the insurgency side kind of seems like the more fun side to be on. <laughs> like, right. you, you, now talk about MacGyver. Just be effective. I don't care how you do it, yeah, right? Yeah. Just, yeah, to be able to think up some of that stuff. Yeah. I'm just glad they didn't have um, IEDs, you know, in Vietnam, because I don't know that we'd have figured out how to handle that. You know, that would have been. Man, I know y'all had some minds, but yeah, the IED war really ramped up over in Middle But in Middle most East. of ours were Claymore set on the side of the road. Oh, okay. Okay. Most of my our most of ours weren't actually bombs that you drive over or anything. They, okay. You had some 10-year-old kid that when a truck went by, they, you know, pulled the clacker yeah. and set off a, you know, a claymore. Uh, that's what, you know, we did have that. And so if you saw some kid sitting on the side of the road kind of looking, you know, around, now, I probably didn't do 20 miles in a truck the entire time I'm there. That's good. You know, yeah. but uh, uh, the few times that I did, you know, I mean, that's, you know, that's what they look for. And, and yep. then the other thing was throwing hand grenades in the window of a bus if you were going somewhere where they, you know, all of them had, had expanded metal over the windows that a hand grenade would just bounce off of. Oh, yeah. Uh, I had a hand grenade hit uh, the wall of my high back one time because they'd start with rocks. Yeah. Right. Which we can't do anything about rocks. And I ended up getting slingshots and tearing up some kids with a slingshot. Um, but I remember in Fallujah, they were throwing rocks one day and this loud one whack, hits the side of the thing. I was like, damn. And it bounces up over the corner and lands in the street. And one of the guys peeks his head. He was like, oh shit. Boom. This grenade goes off and all the kids go running. Like, man, there would have been eight of us in the back. Like it was, yeah. it was a full high back either piling out at 40 right. miles an hour or I think I'd have jumped out for sure and yeah. taken my chances with the road. But if you even see it, if you know what it is, you know, there's water bottles and backpacks sure. and guys everywhere. Yeah. It was a mess. Yeah. And, and using children in that mm -hmm. way is pretty sinister. I, it, it is. And, and, you know, I mean, would we, do, you know, if we were occupied, would we do the same thing? I, we grew up different. I would not use the same yeah. tactics because I grew up differently, but I didn't grow up in the way they did. Right. No. And so, again, respect your enemy. How long of a war do you think it would have to be before people started to use their kids? Initially, I don't think anyone would do that. But if you're facing losing and you're facing being taken over by a communist state or something that you believe that, that would be, I mean, there's worse things than death, right? I would, I would think living under a regime that tortures and kills people and like you wouldn't want that for your kid. I don't know how long, how long it would take because people are obviously doing it. I, I would have a, I have a really hard time understanding their mindset. Yeah. But, but again, I didn't grow up that way. Uh, you know, I didn't grow up with, you know, wondering what, what I was going to eat or, you know, right. running around in, in, you know, in dirt streets with, you know, half-assed clothes. So. It's a hard thing to. It is. It's really a hard thing. Perspective I mean, to have. Yeah. You, you, you know, when you're fighting something that is so much bigger than yours, it just almost anything seems fair. Yeah. I imagine so. That and I think in places where, you know, there's extreme poverty, people have a more intimate experience with death. Than we do here. They do. Somebody dies now, you call an ambulance, you call the morgue, they take the body away, they pump it full of formaldehyde, they put makeup and nice clothes, yeah. and they present them for exactly. everyone to come by a few days later and say goodbye. You don't have that in other countries. Mm -hmm. And death is a part of life. And I don't know, maybe they just 
It's different, I guess. I, I, I do think. I mean, and, and, and death becomes so normal, so every day. Yeah. And I think that's what I was talking about in Vietnam, you know, when I said everything was just kind of flat. Yeah. You know, because you, you, you didn't you didn't really ever go out and celebrate something, mm-hmm. but you also didn't go grieve it either. You yeah. just were flat all the way along because it happened all the time. Right. You know, the first time, you know, when that friend of mine that I went to basic with, you know, to me, that was, it was, it was, yeah, I hate to say it was significant for about two hours. And then somebody said, you got a mission, you know, you need to get going. Just emotionally impotent. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I could imagine that. So I think we were that way too. So you came home, had to deal with some, some cultural changes, or at least some, some of the, I guess, negative yes. publicity from mm-hmm. having gone over there. What was your plan? What did you... Well... Did you have one laid out? I felt comfortable and confident even, you know, at Fort Campbell, Kentucky. Because, I mean, what I did, you know, I flew helicopters five days a week. And I was an yeah. instructor. I was an instrument and a, and a contact. Contact is teaching you to fly the thing in the first place. And an instrument is to teach you to fly in the clouds. Um and so that's, you know, that's that's what I did. And so I was real confident in that. And, you know, there was nobody shooting at you. And I went home, you know, every day and and I was going to go, you know, do the same thing tomorrow. And and you drank a lot and smoked a lot of pot. And, you know, you, um, you know, life just went on. That <laughs> sounds pretty good. Yeah, I mean, people, <laughs> people think you smoke a lot of pot while you're in Vietnam. I didn't. But when I came home, I, you know, there's no question about it. Yeah. Um, but I think that was the thing. Then everybody was doing that. Yes, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and there was a there was there was a there was a guy that in the same apartment complex that um, that I lived in, and um, he was a uh, he was a narc for the uh, uh, county sheriff's department, and he oh. would, and he would bring home some from from any time they busted a bunch of people and stuff. He'd bring it home. Nice. <laughs> Appreciate your time, sir. Yeah, Here you go. Take you some know, of that home. And so I was like, okay, well, that's fine. That's fine with me. But that's uh, not a bad friend to have. Yeah. Yep. That's funny. Yep. Yep. So you didn't have a lot of a plan when you came home. No, no, I didn't. And then, but I, it evolved that I really wanted to go back to college. I finally had, I finally realized I wasn't stupid, you know. And why I, did you think you were stupid? My dad was a great guy, but he used to tell me that. He said, you know, I'm really disappointed in you. You're just really not smart enough to, to go on. I'm dyslexic. I'm severely dyslexic. Hmm. And, you know, um, I can't spell. I mean, the things they would do, um, I think they probably quit it by the time you went to school and everything, but elementary school, you know, you'd you'd do the, the 10 spelling words you're supposed to do by the end of the week, and, you, and you're supposed to have a spelling bee at the end of the week. I couldn't do that. Yeah. You know? I mean, it just really didn't work. And so, you know, and my dad was... Uh, Okay, my dad was the first of his family to ever go to college. He also spent two and a half years in a prisoner war camp in World War II in, wow. in Poland. Um, wow. And, um, you know, so, um, you know. Did he ever talk about that? Not really. Um, no. I'm going to say really almost not at all. It wasn't until the— um, uh, it wasn't until after he passed away that my mom gave me his diary. And so I had his diary from that time. I still have it. Did you read it? Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Did he open up in there? You know, I, I'm not going to say he would. I'm not going to say he really opened up. He, 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 it got, I'm going to say it's more general. 
you know. I mean, he was a senior American officer uh, in this prisoner of war camp. And, um, you know, he, he didn't, um, it was towards the end. Yeah, I mean, but, you know, I mean, it was all the way to the end. I mean, that's when the Americans came in and, and took over the prisoner of war camp and stuff. Yeah. So it was right at, right to the end. And, um, you know, the, he said that the, the German soldiers there, the guards stuff, didn't have, didn't have a whole lot more food than they did. Wow. And, you know, and by the time he was done, he was down around 100 pounds, and he's about my size. Um, wow. So, um, I imagine that would have an effect on someone. Yeah, he had a hard time. And he had, uh, you know, he just had great expectations for, you know, for what I would do. And, and um, you know, and I, I just didn't live up to that, you know, when I was in high school everything um so um anyway what that what that breaks down is you know the army built some confidence in me and everything i wanted to go back to college and so the army had what's called a bootstrap program where they uh you write this essay and and ask to be sent back to college and they pay your salary you can grow long hair you don't have to do anything you don't go to you know you don't go to training you know two weeks a year like the national guard or anything you just go to school but then when you come back you're going to spend a lot of time in the army so I wanted to go, and they came back with. I mean, it really was, you know, on the in in the in the response to that was uneducatable. <laughs> oh, fuck you, we can't send this guy to school. <laughs> he can't write. You keep flying helicopters. Yeah, you're just yeah. you're just fine with that. We don't have a whole lot of you, you know, That's that, with your experience and stuff. And we don't think you can go much further than that in education or any kind of you know other in any kind of officer program. So, you know, you just hang in there and do what you're doing. Well, I mean, obviously, you are educatable. You were flying Cobras in Vietnam, lived through the whole experience, and were teaching, and and so it's just the words that the dyslexia. Yes. How did you get through that? You know, um, it it in the beginning, um, dyslexia is is you look at you look at each word as a picture. It's you know, and the problem is if if words you know. There are a lot of words that have the first letter and the last letter is the same. And so you mix those up all the time. Okay. So you would read them backwards. Well, no, I don't mean mix them up that way. I mean like, okay, you take a word that has five letters in it or you take a word that has four letters in it, but they're both in and the same. You would pronounce, you would say the wrong word and you see the wrong word in there. Wow. And so it just doesn't, and you can't, you don't, you don't get you read a book or something and you don't get everything out of it that you should. Um, but the army had their process was that it was double spaced, bigger letters. And so I got the right words put together. And so, you know, I did that there, but then, you know, people who are dyslexic, um, you can't write, you just can't write essays. You can't write something that's more than, you know, everything you write is just single, single syllable words because it's the only thing that you know you're going to use correctly. Yeah. Um, my wife and I have um, a, uh, both of our kids went to, to Texas Tech, Tech in Lubbock. And so, um, and, and our middle daughter, Jaina, um, is dyslexic as well. Mm. And so um, she went to what's called a techniques program there which is specifically designed for people with dyslexia to teach you to teach you to learn to learn. And that's the thing. You have to learn how to use what you can do to accomplish what these other people do without this first step. Right. Okay. 
And so um, we actually, uh, it's it's not an inexpensive program. And so we decided that um, there was, there are kids who can't afford it. So we actually did a um, a uh, endowment um, for kids that are dyslexic to be able to go to this program. That's great. But anyway, I um, when uh, they wouldn't, uh, <laughs> they weren't going to send me to college. I was uneducatable. I said, "Okay, well, fuck you. I'm, I'm, I'm out of here. <laughs> yeah, I'm out of here." And I got to, I got to tell a story. I don't think this is totally. I don't think it's. I don't think they're really related, but I still tell it anyway. Um, we were. Um, I was teaching aerial gunnery, and uh, you know, and rockets and stuff to to people who were just gotten out of Cobra School, and which that's not something they actually teach you in Cobra School. So we're doing that, and um, so we were doing low level high speed, and um, um, where we the range we were doing this was not far out of Indianapolis. There's a there's an aerial an Army aerial gunnery range, you know, and I don't I can't even remember exactly where, but not far out of Indianapolis. But the commander of that unit wanted to ride in a Cobra and shoot machine guns. So okay, fine. So I got in the back seat. The instructor normally is in the front seat. I got in the back seat, and and went out there and let him shoot a minigun and stuff like that. And he said, well, how do rockets work? And I went, okay, well, I'll fire one for you. And I fired off a rocket. Well, the every once, rarely, they got four fins that fold out. They're called a folding fin aerial rocket. They got four fins that are chamfered so it'll spin, mm-hmm. you know? And so um, when when it came out of the tube, evidently one of the one of the fins broke off. And when it does, the rocket just goes wild like that. It went and hit a tree right in front of us. Okay, I mean that aircraft was so full of holes. Now, if you'd done that in Vietnam, you just walk off from it. And nobody says a word. You know, combat damage. We'll fix it. Stuff like that. Indianapolis, you can't do that. Yeah. So, it was the next month. I was applying the first working day of every month. I applied to get out of the army. Wow, and an went, application period to get out. An application, but but and it would be denied by the end of the month. It would be <laughs> yeah. denied, and I would do it again. Rinse and repeat. Okay, yeah. So, the first time that I applied after that shot holes in that thing, I was it was it, they let me out. <laughs> what a coincidence! <laughs> this guy's starting to blow up helicopters. <laughs> yeah. We got to get him out of here. I, you know, I don't really think it was real, but anyway, I tell the story like that anyway. So I got out, and um, gosh, I uh, I had had a friend in the army who. Um, Nick Dreesen, and he um, um, had gone to Canada with some girlfriend or something like that and said, hey, you know, he'd send me a letter. said, you know, there's lots of jobs for helicopter pilots up here. So I said, no shit, you know, here I come. So I went up there and got a job flying as a bush pilots in the Canadian Northwest Territories, and I went in February, and it was like, I don't Damn, know. Damn, cold. Uh, well, we lived in a trailer but the trailer looked like a meat locker where you live on the inside. Same kind of door and everything with a big lever and things, no windows, you know, and just walls this thick. Because it was in the 60 below range, 60, 70 below range. I mean, I mean Norman Wells in the Canadian Northwest You Territory. can fly in that? Yes. But you got to think, wow. think about something. It's only daylight about 45 minutes a day. Mm-hmm. And so you would keep it in a Quonset hut thing with heaters. And you would roll it down. As soon as the blade cleared that thing, you push the starter button and start it. You don't shut it down. Of course, I mean, 45 minutes. And you're talking about the Northwest Territory. There are no ground references. There's no lights anywhere. Yeah. I mean, it's black. 
Yeah. And so there's no, and there's no radio aids to navigation or anything like that. So, uh, how did you navigate? Um, you know, in the daylight, you dead reckon, you know, you had a lap, you had a, a map sitting on your lap and you picked real accurate maps. The shape of a lake is correct. Oh. And so when you flew, okay, this lap, okay, I'm slightly left of where I want to be. You know, I need to be a little bit further over from that lake, you know, and that's how you navigate. Azimuth, flight time, speed, stuff like yes. that. Yes. Okay. You know, uh, actually not that quite, not quite that sophisticated. Okay. I mean, you'd literally fly from one lake to the next is what, what it really amounted to. Breadcrumbs. There you go. That's a good way to put it. It's a breadcrumb course. And um, you'd be taking people out to drilling rigs or bringing them back. Or if, you know, they broke a bit or something like that, you know, you'd take that out or whatever. That's that's what I was doing. And you'd come back in and slowly in February, I mean, slowly as it went on, the days got a little bit longer and longer and longer. But um, I realized then that that I was need, I was going to need to do something, but this is not going to work out for me long okay. long term. This is really not going <laughs> to. That's hard living. Yeah, I did. Oh, it's really hard living. Sixty below. You crashed out there. You're dying. You did. Well, nature. okay. You carried survival gear. You if if you went out your door without your survival gear, you were fired. Really? Yes. Wow. You were. I mean, you, what did your survival gear consist? I mean, of? you you had parkas that. I mean, don't get me wrong. You're not going to survive a, a couple of more than a couple of days. Yeah. But there were thermal blankets, um, and there was MREs, mm. and the the gloves, the stuff you know that the all of the equipment that you you know that you had to take with you, uh, and you're supposed to be wearing the pants already because they supposedly at 60 below, you, you're down out there and the wind's blowing, you only got seconds to get, you know. I guess it's that's what they say about like people you know, fall overboard in the, you know, in the Arctic oceans or something Yeah, that you only got seconds before you can no longer function enough to put that stuff on. Yeah. Um, but anyway, you know, this was before cell phones or anything like that. So this is radio phone where, you know, you call somebody, you call an operator and you call somebody and you call somebody and say, I want this phone number. And you go and you talk to him and you go over and then they can talk to you. You can't talk over each other at all. So when one person's got that button down, they yeah. got, they got, I called my brother who was in Houston. I said, enroll me in the closest university. I'll be there in September. <laughs> and he lived in Houston, so he went enrolled. He pretended he was me and went enrolled in the University of Houston. Yeah. You know, wow. starting that September. Um, what's interesting is that's how I started there. But um, then I spent uh, I spent altogether eight summer seasons doing that to pay my way through school. Wow. And uh, it's, um, God, Zach, it's a rough life. But, um, I mean, it's exciting. I mean, talk about exciting. You know, I mean, you fish in lakes and stuff that have never, ever been fished in. That's cool. You know, you're on a helicopter with floats, and you can just stop on a lake, and that's what you're going to have for dinner tonight. Because, I mean, you're, you're catching northern pike. That's a great sense of freedom. It is. Thing. Oh, just I, go out and, and I can't imagine a better way to decompress. I think that's that. You know, you certainly don't have the um, uh, you don't have the stresses. Of, yeah. You know that you don't have stresses of of life that much. And all of the anti-war culture that a lot of guys came back to and were yeah. engulfed in and couldn't get away from. I think that was probably a great well, decision. It was, and not only that, it helped because everybody considered U.S. Army trained helicopter pilots were the best in the world. Mm. You got that. That's the best training possible. Sure, and and I think it still is because I mean the Israelis, the Germans, the UK, um, 
uh, all train here in, in helicopters. So, um, but anyway, I did that and um, went to the University of Houston, you know, made incredible grades. I mean, like on the dean's list. And this is somebody who barely graduated. What from was high the switch? Because you still had dyslexia, right? I still have dyslexia, but I had already learned to learn. Okay. You know, through the army, I learned how to learn. I learned how to over that you could do it. I, 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 I'm not a dumbass. Yeah. You know, but um, I, I learned how to use what I have to make it work. It's different than somebody without dyslexia. You know, there's an extra step to being able to do it, and so I did really well. And I applied to go to dental school and got in without ever graduating from college. And my kids called me a college dropout. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and then, then went on to, uh, um, um, to orthodontics and, and, um, and, you know, did an orthodontic residency in Houston and practiced orthodontics for 38 years here in Austin. So that's been your day job is orthodontics, right? But where did the... I guess the seed get planted for for these trips that you do. Where did you when did you start doing those? <clears throat> My wife calls me a thrill-seeking hypochondriac. <laughs> okay. Okay, because I have always been a risk taker. Mm. And uh you know the mountain bike riding, uh-huh. if you don't come home bleeding, you didn't try hard enough. Right. And um uh and so I've always been interested in adventure. And so um, one day um, <coughs> a friend of mine gave my phone number to Doug Pitt, who's Brad Pitt's brother, okay, and said, hey, you want to go climb uh, Kilimanjaro with us and ride mountain bikes down? And I went, oh, yeah. And he said, okay. And I said, what do I have to do? And he said, well, you know, this is world water, and we're trying to drill water wells for the Maasai tribe in uh, in um, Tanzania, and so you have to donate the cost of a water well. I said, "So how much is this water well?" Yeah, and you know, and he told me, and it was not inexpensive. And uh, so I went to Brenda, and she goes, "Look, you love to do stuff like this. You can afford it. Go try it." So was, was that your first big over, that was overseas first trip? When did you do that? Um, Thirteen. Wow. How old were you then? Well, let's see. In 13, I would have been 50. I would have been right at, yeah, 50. Yeah, just a little over, 51. Yeah. So were you just being a dentist, being a dad, getting everything done that you needed to get done? Were your kids out of the house at that time? Yeah. um, um, No. No. um, uh, uh, Not all of them. Um, One of them was, one of them wasn't. And, um, you know, but, I mean, okay, so... I raced motorcycles for a while in there. I remember that. Okay. Yeah. And then I raced what's called legend cars. And a legend what's car. What's a legend car? A legend car is a, it's a 5.8 scale of the original NASCAR cars, which were the, you know, 38, 39, 40 models, Ford, Chevrolets, you know, wow. Chryslers, Dodges at that time. Um, and they're powered by a 1,200cc motorcycle motor. A yeah. Yamaha motorcycle motor, and um, they raced quarter mile, three eight quarter and three eighths mile oval track, and did that for a number of years. It was a blast. I bet you know it was a lot of fun. You got a Corvette recently? Yes, right? I did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's. I do. I'll have to see a picture of that. Yeah, um, 
So, um, you know, so you like to drive. I, you like I, to go I, fast. I love to go fast. I mean, Ricky Bobby it up. No such thing as going too fast. <laughs> yeah, I've always said, you know, and I and I and, I, and I've built a couple of Corvettes, a couple oh. vintage Corvettes, um, a '62 and a '63, and I've always said that uh, there's no such thing as too much horsepower. You know, you just you don't want to use it. Don't push the gas down. Don't push the pedal down. Yeah. You know, so, but having it is not a sin. <laughs> so. What was that trip to Tanzania like then? Oh, geez. I mean, it was, it was really pretty cool. Cause there was a, there was a group of us that, um, um, there was a group of donating people. Mm-hmm. And then there was the, um, uh, there was a couple people that organized it, like Doug Pitt and one other person, you know, were organizing it. Was Brad Pitt involved in no, that at all? Not at all. Just his no, brother? No. Probably just funded it. Yeah, we all, we all wanted Jolene to go, but, you know, if she didn't make it. So um, I'm kidding, you know, but um, no, he didn't go. Um, but um, uh, and then there were there was the um, the guide and and all of the um, um, porters. It, uh, so it made it really it made it really interesting. So climbing Kilimanjaro is really unique. More than a mountain climb, it's a really long hike. Okay, okay. you start out at about um, you start at about twenty five hundred feet elevation above sea level, and the top of Kilimanjaro is nineteen thousand four hundred thirty one three hundred forty one feet to be exact. Wow. Okay, so um, so you were going up. 17,000 feet. Yeah, that's a trek. Um, the, were you carrying the bike? No, that's what the porters were doing. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's what the porters were doing. Yeah. Uh, that's like a Sherpa then. Yeah, for it's exactly the same thing. They, but, okay. You know, and that's that's one of my other adventures going to um, um, Nepal and uh, to the uh, Everest Base Camp. God, that's pretty cool. I'll tell you about it in a second. But, um, um, you know, the idea is that you you need it's it's well it's called climb high sleep low to be to get acclimated to that. So you would climb high you would climb about 500, 600 feet higher than you're going to go back to and spend the night. Really, and and that's that's but doing that if you take the time to do that. Almost every, all but two people out of our group. There were nineteen people in our group. All but two people actually uh, made it to the summit. summit. How many days did it take you? Uh, six. Wow. Um, you're going through, an, and it's very interesting because you go through four eco zones. Um, you know, when you start out, it's farmland. I mean, there's farmers and and stuff and growing bananas and all kinds of stuff down. You know, down at the very bottom where you start out on this trek. You know, and then um, you go through Equatorial Africa. And when I say equatorial Africa, I'm talking about, you know, there's a trail and they kind of keep it not very far out, you know, probably 50 feet out on each side. They, they don't really keep the jungle real close to it because, I mean, there's lions and I mean, you can hear them and every once in a while see them not that far away, um, you know, and. Uh, they have rifles or any kind of. They did not. Just push the porter down and run i guess but you know <laughs> they say that there just there just really isn't a problem um mm. like that and and so they never did and we never had a problem with it but you spend a couple of days going through that and and then and you know and then the the next level is um high desert where there's not very many trees 
and wind's blowing like crazy, and it's fairly warm. But then the next level is actually Arctic. I mean, when you get up above, when you start getting up above about 14,000 feet above sea level, it's freaking cold. I mean, there, there's a, this is just off, just barely south of the equator. So a place where it's warm most of the time. Yeah. There's a glacier on top of Kilimanjaro. Kilimanjaro is, is the tallest freestanding mountain in the world. Okay. Because Everest and all of those others, you know, K5 and all those, they're all connected together in a chain. Okay. Okay. And Everest, I mean, uh, uh, Kilimanjaro is a um, is a uh, an extinct volcano. Um, pretty cool. Yeah. You know, a pretty cool trip. And then, and then. Uh, so, how high did you? When did you start biking? I mean, okay. you're not going to roll over the summit. All right, give me my bike and head straight back down the trail you climbed. Pretty right? much. Really. Mm-hmm. Not not exactly down the hill you climbed because there were places. Okay. From the summit, you they didn't carry your bike all the way to the summit. They probably stopped 1,500 vertical feet short of that okay. 19,000 feet because at that point, you're literally climbing. You know, you don't need ropes in and stuff like that, but you're on your hands and knees climbing for that last 1,500 feet. And so they really did, but anything. They but, didn't want to finish it out. You know, well, you, couldn't, you couldn't ride a bike down that. <laughs> uh, but you know, short of that, show us in your tip, exactly. Um, but in uh, you know, short of that, you get back on your bike and and you ride down to a to kind of a base camp. So they the you go to about sixteen thousand feet in that and that last that last three thousand thirty five hundred feet or something, whatever it is. Um, you leave from your camp just about midnight. And the idea is to get to the summit about eight o'clock. So you know, so you, it takes about eight hours to get there. Wow. But the big thing is, is if somebody gets hurt, you got all day long to get them down. That's why they do it that way. Okay. okay? Um, and there's no helicopters or anything in the area. They got you ought to, you ought to see their 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 idea of a stretcher is like a car tire in the center on an axle, and and it looks like wheelbarrow things on each, you know, on each end. Yeah. So there's only one wheel. And that's how they, you know, that's their idea of a... of a Pretty primitive. Yeah, pretty primitive. A wheelbarrow. Yeah. So um, anyway, you, uh, you get back down to that base camp where you spent the night until midnight. Yeah. And then, then it's a pretty much of a free-for-all uh, for bicycling on the way down, how fast you want to go. And, and I love going fast, so... Um, but you'd be you'd be hauling it down these trails, and and you'd see a little ditch coming up, and you catch a rock and jump over it. I mean, that's that's why I got rebuilt shoulder. And did you wreck on the way down? Oh, sure, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, and, and there was a doctor with us, so he su- he sutured up my leg. Um, but uh, didn't have to use a fish hook. That no, time. I didn't have to use a fish hook that time. That's good. Um, but. Um, was going along, just really hauling it, and and there were little cuts across this man-made kind of a I don't know a little plateau, probably fifteen feet wide, and there was a little cut in it every so often. But there were rocks, so you could find a rock to jump over. And and, and the little cut wasn't probably a foot, you know. It's like an irrigation yes, water yeah. to flow. 
Okay. So I'm going along, hauling it down, and all of a sudden I see this shadow move down here. So I pull the brakes and stop, and I look up, and there's a giraffe eating out of the tree. I mean, there's no fences here. This is not Disneyland. Yeah. There's a giraffe eating out of the tree right on top of where I am. I mean, it was freaking cool. I mean, that giraffe was... His legs were about as far as me to that wall right there. And and, and those are big animals. I mean, they're, they're enormous. Yeah. Like feet like that. Yeah. Um, but it was, you know, and so it was a lot of fun. I mean, going down. The whole trip was, um, you know, we had um, um, people like Joe Buck was with us, the guy that one of the uh, NFL football announcers. Oh, he wow. and his daughter were there. Um Let's see. I was with, you know, and the person who sent it to me was Mark McKinnon. Mark McKinnon had been uh, Bush's media, the W, Bush W, um, or George W, uh, had been his media advisor while he was uh, president. And and McKinnon and I mountain bike together. So cool. he was there. And just, a, a, you know, a number of just really, really cool people um, who did this. And, it's an awesome and it was, trip. It was a lot of fun. It was. It really was. It was great. You know, it really was. Um so and and we spent we spent a couple of weeks there. You know, part of it was seeing and meeting the Maasai tribe and and seeing some of the you know going to the spots where some of the wells were already drilled. That yeah, I'd want to see a well for sure. Like, where's yeah. my money going to over here? Some guy's got a Mercedes. I I really believe that because I thought that way at first. Sure. Okay, and then I started to understand these people putting this on. These are very wealthy people to start with without, I mean, these are people, you know, um, that decided that they didn't need to work. They got plenty of money and they were going to see what they could do about, you know, some of the hot, really um, poor people in the world and, and what they would do. I guess what really turned me on is, you know, there's a, we're driving to the tribe and, and there's um, a, um, there's ruts in the road and it had rained a little bit, but I mean, in this rut, I mean, I watched this cow pee in this rut, and I watched this kid drink out of it, you know. And you, so that's when you start really getting it, you know. And and it's a it's a strange society because the men sit around and BS and smoke all day, and the women haul water. Yeah. You know, I mean, they get up as I understand, it, they get up like before dawn to to trek where they can get water yeah. and get back by the end of the day. And this is a seven day a week. That's all they do. So that's a good opportunity to know that you left an impact. It does. It, it really is. I really, and I really believe the wells got drilled. I mean, I really do. Um, and I think that, uh, I think it was a really good thing to do. Don't get me wrong. I had a great time. You yeah. know, I mean, it was, it was, it was incredible seeing what I saw. And I've been back to Africa once since then. Okay. Um, you know, I, I finally, uh, my wife is one of those people who considers um, um, camping to be a single vanity in a five-star hotel. <laughs> yeah. You know, if it didn't, if it doesn't have two sinks, where she and I have to brush our teeth in the same sink, she's not going. <laughs> and so, anyway, I finally talked her into going back because I found a, a a glamping trip. Yeah. And she loved it so much so that she's going back again. Oh, nice. Yeah. Which country did you go to? We went to um, Kenya. Kenya. Mm -hmm. Kenya is a no hunting country. Period. Yep. Okay. Yep. And so the wildlife Only photography, right? Right. And so the wildlife there. Or you know you can you get right up up close and personal with them uh, yeah. and and see them and it's interesting it was in, it was interesting going there because I mean we we went out in Nairobi um, in a um, a Cessna caravan and you just land in a field I mean you just land in a spot where there's no trees you know there's not a runway 
Yeah. And so it's lots of fun. It was kind of exciting. That's very cool. Tell me about the next time that you went to Vietnam. Okay. Um, I had heard about the discovery of a cave um, um, in Vietnam that was supposed to be the largest cave in the world. Mm-hmm. And um, it's pretty recently discovered, it was too. Discovered in 09. Right. It was first discovered in 09 by a um, farmer who was looking for a cow that uh, had gotten lost and it started raining and really hard and everything. And he found this, he just thought he would get it. You know, this is the story I'm told anyway. He started, you know, just decided he found this little hole, you know, under a bunch of rocks and decided to just crawl in there until the, until the storm was over. And once he got inside, no lights or anything with him, but once he got inside, realized it was, it was a big cave and he forgot all about it, but he was evidently a number of years later, somebody was really was talking about it. And um, they heard about it and, you know, and some spelunkers out of the UK wanted to come find it. And they spent, I guess, a couple of years finding it again. Wow. Uh, it is literally you're walking along on a stream and the stream dies into a mountain. And there's a hole in there that you have to take your backpack off and tie it to your belt because you're going to crawl in there and dragging your backpack. There's not enough room for your backpack to be on your back. That's how small it is. I'm not going to crawl in there. It's only, it's only <laughs> about 10 feet. Really? It's only about 10 feet. Okay. Then it opens into a cavern that literally, in the way they've measured it, could park two 747 side by side. Wow. It was it's truly one of the great wonders of the world. It really when did when did you go? Fifteen. Fifteen. Yeah, I Had was you... I was the I was in the first group of paying people that had been in there. Oh, so once the scientists and the explorers had kind of established what it was, and then they opened it up. You were in the first group to yeah. go. They didn't find it again and really start exploring it until thirteen. Okay. And you can only go a few months a year because it turns into a raging river the rest of the time. I bet that sounds like a death trap waiting to happen. If you get in there when it, <laughs> yeah. if you get in there during the rainy season, it is. Yeah, I mean it definitely is because you can't you can't get out. There's no right. way out. Right. Um, it's um, six and a half miles deep, and then the river running in there, the stream dives underground, and you're you have to turn around and come six and a half miles back out. How did you feel going back to Vietnam? I tried really hard not to think about it. That, it, you know, this is a cave. This isn't Vietnam. This is a right, cave. Right. Okay. But it didn't, my, my, that was how I went thinking, but it didn't work. No. No. I mean, we got there, we drove by, you know, the, the road, what would have been the rock pile, um, the road that would have gone over to Quezon. And, um, you know, and, and that's Quang Tri province in there. And so, you know, then we get to some other places, you know, just short of that, that, I mean, I fired rockets into those cities yeah. you know, in, in an offensive that happened once. So it was real. It was, it was, it, it was real. And I was... Were you alone? No. I was with Mark McKinnon and his wife. And Mark is, has become a really good friend, and he is very... Um, he's attuned to people's thoughts and emotions. 
And he saw me kind of change. And he said, okay, look, I, I know this is changing for you. Where do we need to go? What do you need to see? Yeah. You know, and the driver goes, well, but you'll be, and Mark goes, we're paying for this. You know, if it's a little more, we're going here. So. Where did you go? Quezon. Um, drove up there. It's nothing, it's nothing but, it's nothing but a hill with a bunch of dirt, you know, um, and not even the revetments are still there. Uh, you know, I, you know, I always thought those would survive forever, but I think they would probably bulldoze down because, you know, the Marines left it, they're all the revetments and all that kind of stuff and the PSP um, runway um, in 68. And then, then we went back in there in 70. Uh, we, the Army, went back in there in 70, and a lot of that stuff was still there. Mm-hmm. Uh, it had to be repaired and stuff, but it's all, it's all gone now, and that's, and that's fine. There's a little village down the hill from it because it's a great, and there's a stream in there. <clears throat> so um, the stream... Um, the stream provides water for the town and stuff like that. So there's a little village down in the bottom of that. So we did that. And, um, you know, then um, went to a couple other little towns and stuff and 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 walked around and, and you know, spent the night near one of them and things like that that, that I'd been around. So, yeah. I, I, you know, uh, I think with the help of my friends and everything, uh, I'm not sure. I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't have just, you know, melted down or anything. But I think, you know, Mark was really cool in the fact that he, well, okay, now what did you do here? You know, I mean, he would guide, you know, ask questions and stuff like that. So it turned out really pretty cool. You know, it, it really did. I didn't look at it as, as negative or anything. I tell you what, scared shit out of me. <laughs> oh, it was really weird. Um, I went from there to Hanoi. You know, when we, le- we left there, made a flight to Hanoi, Hanoi to back to Hong Kong. And um, I walked around the corner in the Hanoi airport. Now you understand this is, this is now 2015. So, and they're NBA soldiers in the exact same freaking uniform. <laughs> now yeah. that one set me back. I bet. I mean, I walked around that corner and saw that uniform and almost turned around and went the other way. Wow. You know, I mean, it really, that one set me back a little bit. And then they said, you know, cause I was with still Mark said, you want to go see the, you know, prisoner work camp stuff like that. I said, I really don't. You know, that's just not, I'm going to stay here at the airport. I said, well, yeah. can we, you know, said, yeah, you go do what you want. I'm staying here. Yeah, you I'll, came real close to getting to see one up, up, up personal. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I want out of this country. At, at yeah. that time, at that time, it was no longer the cave. I was ready to leave. How was the cave? You said you spent oh, six, God, it was six miles. How many days did six you and spend? Days. Six, six and a half days. Six, six and a half miles. In, and you spend uh, five days in the cave. Wow. Every, is there... No natural light. Everything's artificial light. Are you camping in there? Oh yeah, you know, bringing it. Is it just that big? That much to explore? Yes. What are you doing for six yes. days? Yeah, there is that. I mean, it takes it takes three days to get in and three days to get out. Wow. Now you have no idea what time of day it is. There is no light. <laughs> the only light is your That's headlamp. Weird. That's it. There are no natural. There are no lights put in there. You know, it's not like you know, the cave out by Georgetown, you know, yeah. where you have trails and stuff like that. It's not right. like that at all. Um, now, I understand now they've made it, you know, it, it is a tourist location now. Sure. And I understand that, you know, that they've they've made it a little bit better. I mean, you have to repel from that little thing you crawl in. You're at, you're at the top of a sheer wall going down into the cave where you can actually walk. So you have to repel down that. And then you have to climb, rope climb it back, you know, with the footstep 
yeah. roping and a you sender to, and a sending yeah. device. Yeah. yeah, you have to. You have to. Had you done cave exploration before? No. or Repelling or no? That repelling, yeah. Like that sounds cool. Yeah. Now I have repelled. Yeah. You know. So yeah, I did that. Um, but um, now, what was it about this cave? It's the biggest cave in the world, and it just you know it was there. I mean, it's kind of like it's kind of like you know um, Everest. It's yeah. there. I mean, people look at me like, why would you go? It's just, it's just a rock. It's Everest, man. It's there, and I want to go see it. And it was, I mean, Everest was incredible to see. The cave was phenomenal. You, you got to understand, it's because everybody says, well, what about snakes and stuff like that? There's no snakes in there. There's no freaking bugs in there. You know, there is no light. There is nothing alive in there because there's no way for it to support itself yeah. with with no light. I mean, I get, I get how. You know, the theory is at one time an uh, um, a asteroid or something hit Earth and made it all cloudy and dark and everything died. I get it because that's what living in that cave is like. There's nothing in there. There's not a skeleton. There's nothing Wow. in there. I mean, the stalactites and stalagmites are bigger than most buildings. Holy shit. I mean, it was incredible to see. I mean, it was truly a phenomenal experience. Wow. Um, that's a hard thing to envision. That at least on that grand, it's like imagining space. Yes. Like how big that Pretty is. Pretty much. Yeah. You know, because you're wearing a headlight and it doesn't shine all the way across to the other side. I mean, you're wearing spotlights for headlights and it does not illuminate the far side. That's how far away it is in yeah. in this cave. You know, and there's, and of course there's, um, I mean, they were using water purification equipment, but I got a feeling that the water would have been fine. Yeah. But you you got to bathe every day, unlike Kilimanjaro, where you go seven days without a bath. Oh, yeah. Um, was it cold in there? Was it hot? No. Was no, it's about 72 degrees, 71, 72 degrees wow. all the time. I mean, you're so far underground that, that it's there's no, what's up here, you know, and blowing by it has no effect on what's down there. And so it's just really, it was very comfortable being shorts and a T-shirt the whole time. The water, you know, was a little bit on the chilly side, but not much different than, you know, than a swimming pool. Mm-hmm. So um, it was great. And, and again, there were, they were porters carrying, you know, food, and, and you had to have uh, uh, NVA soldiers with you. You had to pay them. They, you know, it, it, that's just a financial thing. They weren't armed or anything, but yeah. they just wanted, you know, they came along to do that. And, and so... Um, and it's each, just a way to make some money. Yes. And, and the same thing with the porters carrying stuff. You know, they're only allowed to carry like 30 pounds. Oh. Okay. So That's you, a convenient You rule. have a whole bunch of them. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, so, um, but it was, it was really, really good. And on that trip, there were, uh, they took a total of 10 people. Yeah. So uh, it, was, it, was, it was a lot of fun. A, t- a total of ten paying people. Okay, that's not that's All not include that's not include the, the support. Right, folks. Right. Yeah. So it was it was good. That's an awesome trip. Yeah. What was your next one? Next one was um, um, Everest in the base camp of Everest, and going to Nepal. Um, Nepal was um, Kathmandu was was very interesting. I mean, it's definitely a backwards country. Um, I. Uh, did you feel prepared having done Kilimanjaro? Like you knew what you were getting into, or was this a whole other animal? No, um, I didn't feel like you know. I, I was I was you know in pretty good shape and pretty prepared. Um, it was a lot of fun. Um, 
But I mean, just Nepal itself and Kathmandu and walking around, I mean, I felt, you know, it's amazing because of the poverty and, and everything there, but I felt very comfortable. I mean, very, um, I didn't feel like anybody was going to bother me um, walking around there. And, and you know, there, there were um, all kinds of stores and stuff you walk in and out of. And things, and and so it was pretty cool. We went to um, we went to the burials. We, we went to how they manage people who die. Okay, and because um, they don't all come off the mountain, right? Or do they get everyone okay, down? Well, this is in the city. This is oh, in the okay. city of Nepal of Kathmandu okay. to start with, which was very interesting. And in the fact that that when somebody dies there, they they build a a, a, a wooden pyre and 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 melt the body or burn the bodies to ash and then sweep them off into the river. Um, oh, wow. So that's their whole, their burial culture uh, is yes, almost like a Viking sort right. of exactly. cremation. Yes. Wow. Yeah. Um, Did you, and y'all witnessed a oh, yeah. funeral? Yeah. Oh, yeah. A number of them. Really? Yes. Some people just dying every day? Well, the, you know, I mean, Catherine Dew is a city of a couple million people. So, yeah. Oh, shit. Okay. Yeah. But then when you get to, um, have you ever heard about that that airport that's at a real high angle? Um, you know, I have it, recently actually uh, the highest airport in the world, right? It's not the highest. That's actually the okay, highest. I'm thinking of a different okay. one. Okay, this one is at a real steep angle into a mountain, and you if you if you land short of you're going uphill, it'll decelerate just by yeah, its own weight. You get because right. it's not long enough to be anything else. Right, and then you turn around and go out the other way, and it's a sheer cliff off the end, of, mm-hmm. right off the end. So, you know, you can accelerate fast enough to be flying, you know, off the end of it, or falling. You, you yeah, <laughs> you fly in there, um, um, and then hike the rest of the way to the base camp. And so okay. that was uh, that was very interesting being there. And then, you know, they, um, Everest has been around a long time, so the trail that you walk on and and the huts along the way that you sleep in and, and things like that and and people find you know your food and things are it's it's been it's a business it now. is a business did now. it feel that way um no well you i think the thrill of seeing it and you know before that i thought okay a mountain's a mountain you know so what if it's a little bit taller but i mean it's i mean like you're like this, looking at the top of it. I mean, you're looking straight up to to look at it. You're, you know, when you're at the base camp and and um, the base camp, people think that's a little camp. It's it's a little city of about a thousand people. And what was interesting is so many different countries' military had encampments there. Really, they were doing healthcare work on high altitude conflict. Wow, they would do. They were doing uh, biopsies, uh, like liver biopsies. I don't, you know, I mean, evidently that tells how your body's doing more than anything else. To do a punch biopsy on a liver, on your liver. But they had, you know, and and the thing is that while they had they had all kinds of barriers, like language barriers and everything, they were all right together and, and, and just helping each other out and everything. It was very interesting. These, you know, countries, these armies that are at war at each other someplace else were yeah. playing cards together. Yeah, there's the North Korean camp down there yeah. to get liver samples. I mean, it's just like that. I mean, it was really wow. interesting. And then, um, 
It's funny without governments how well people can get along. Politicians. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Politicians. When you don't have a politician around, you know, people can get along. Yeah. No you one know, because there's tell nobody out there think. trying to have a bigger one than somebody else. That's right. Um, but, um, uh, you know, what you started to mention a little bit earlier is the base camp is right at where the glacier coming down off of the top part of the mountain starts to fall apart. Mm. And you have all kinds of, you know, stuff. Um, the things coming out the bottom of the Blake Glacier when I was there were in the in the uh, early and mid-50s. What do you mean coming out? Okay. Like, like the ice was melting like and you're like, on oh, the top. there's Jimmy's bean. Yes, yes. <laughs> up on the top somewhere somebody dropped a pole or a glove or they don't really, you know, the skeletons are few and far between, but they're still doing it. I didn't see one come out. Yeah. But then... You know, it snows on it. So the migration of the glacier as it's coming it, down. It goes deeper and deeper into or... the glacier. Wow. And then right at the end there, you know, the glacier kind of cleaves off because it drops off a little bit there and melts right in there because it's not, it's at 18,000 feet. It's cold as hell. Don't, mean, don't get me wrong. And that's what the, that's what the base camp is. But it's not, um, um, you still have glacier, the glacier descender, uh, uh, falling apart and melting. So, cause there's some days it gets above freezing and I guess it has to be, you know, even really at that altitude, you have to even be colder than our normal freezing. I don't understand that, but anyway, that's kind of what I was told. So you would see coming out of the bottom of the glacier there, ski poles, I mean, what I saw, ski poles, gloves, things like that. Wow. Um, that, that, you know, then there was a guy there doing it with, you know, with history. He goes, okay, well, these, this is equipment out of the, you know, mid to uh, uh, early to mid 50s. And, you know, that people dropped, lost or whatever. Sure, it was still good. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm, <laughs> <laughs> it's been probably been down there, you know, 50 years. Here's the yard sale. Anything yeah. you guys need. It's a little old, but um, only used once. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, exactly. Only used once. <laughs> so. Um, and so you went to base camp, but you didn't, you didn't attempt the summit. I had, um, okay. Base camp takes a little bit of lacrimization. Summit takes about six weeks. Oh shit. Um, and I was still working then. Yeah. And I couldn't take six weeks, but I also promised my kids that I wouldn't try it. Oh, they really were, they were you know, they have not been verbal about anything else, but they were really verbal about this one. Yeah. Is about, you know, this isn't, you know, this isn't fun. All right, so, Dad. Yeah. I so, need you to calm it down. Right. We need you not to do this. And you have to be planning a couple of years in it in advance. You probably only need a few months in advance to go to the base camp. Mm. You need to be planning a couple of years in advance to go to be, you know, in a group that goes to the summit. Wow. Uh, because of the six-week acclimatization. You That's know, a long-ass time to just stay. Are you just hanging out at base camp no, for six no, weeks? No, you, you climb. Training? Okay. There, are, there's, there are a number of other camps on the way up. There's base camp, and then there's, you know, there's, okay, base camp is 18,000, and I think there's one at, uh, I know there's one at 25. I think there might even be one in between, and then there's another one, and I don't remember what the altitude is there, and then, the summit is uh, twenty nine thousand something. I don't know, almost almost thirty thousand feet. Yeah, and um, you know, um, no matter what, even if you are breathing oxygen, your body is slowly dying at twenty five thousand feet and above. Um, 
because of the lack of barometric pressure is what I'm told. And, you know, just a number of things, how dry it is. You can't, yeah. you can't drink enough water. So, wow. um, the, uh, and don't the Sherpas just kind of prance around like nothing? Yes, they do. <laughs> I've, I saw an interview with some dude that's like been up the mountain 50 times. Somebody did it. He's, he's a Sherpa. Yes. He's very well known over there that's been up and down and just kind of, I thought, I think I saw a picture. I don't know if I sent it to you or not, but it was a guy carrying another guy on his back, back down the mountain. And, and I, you reached, I, story, I hear like stories about that. Yeah. You know, yeah. that uh, saving people somebody's so trying to make it and a Sherpa will get them down. Yeah. You know, um, it's amazing. See the, you know, you've got to, you've got to get your permit through the Nepalese government to try to go to the summit a couple of years in advance. They only allowed so many people a year ago and it's, it's backed up. I've seen it. I saw a movie and they kind of alluded to too many people being on the mountain, too many people do you treating it like it's a tourist mm-hmm. thing and like, Oh, let's just go. It's clear. Let's do it. And like, no, this is a very serious thing to be yeah. trying to do and getting stranded up there could kill everybody. Um, it's pretty wild. And this is one of those places where I leave. I think if, you know, somebody fails, they leave them. Mm. That, that was my, you know, that was my understanding that otherwise you lose the whole group. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Nobody's in good enough shape to bring anyone else back right. down. Oh, that's wild. Do you think that, like, your family was concerned about you? Was there an, an unhealthy pursuit of of danger or of excitement going on there? Sure. Or was it were you were you just curious about it and wanted to go? It was there, and so curious about it and wanting to go. Part of it, but part of it is because. Um, the adrenaline rush of something that may not work out real well. Mm. I, I, I do that. Yeah. You know, I'm, my nickname in mountain bike riding is Crash. <laughs> because, I mean. That's not the nickname you want. <laughs> even President Bush calls me that. Yeah. Because I still ride on his ranch with him. But I'm willing to try things people aren't. Yeah. And so, you know, sometimes you make it, sometimes you don't. That's true. So. You know, That's true. There is a little bit of a, an adrenaline junkie in there. Mm-hmm. So, um, I don't know, it's personality kind of thing. Yeah, I can relate. Yeah. I understand. So, I, I, I don't, I really don't, I don't really know how to explain it. I really yeah. don't. Well, I, I mean, but, we, we went to visit you in Colorado. I think you flipped upside down on just about every single one of the zip lines across the canyon that we went to. <laughs> yeah. Just find a way to make it more fun. It is. Do it, it upside is. down. But we also had a five year old. Yeah. Yeah. That jumped off a 60 foot cliff, too. <laughs> yeah. So. I think he might have that trait, too. <laughs> yeah. He's got a dirt bike now. He's a maniac. Uh, you know, yeah. It's been fun. Yeah. But, you know, he'll be able to handle things later on in his life, too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's exciting and it's fun. And, and you're right. You're just hoping that, you know, he doesn't kill himself in the process of all that enjoyment. I'm sure that my parents aged more rapidly than was necessary. Yeah, for sure. I think my mom, absolutely. When I came back from the Marine Corps, she had, you could tell, you could tell it's hard on them. Yeah. I never really, um, I never really thought about that until Brenda, my wife uh, asked my mother about it. She said, you know, evidently I wasn't around. Mm -hmm. And my mother said, you know, 
um, there were probably somewhere around 300 sleepless nights out of that 13 months. Easily. Easily. I didn't think about it until I became a father. And then I tried to, and then I saw these personality traits that, that you and I have in my two-year-old. And I'm imagining, she's like, oh, he's just like you. He's just like you. I, I have two of you in the house yeah. now, you know. And I'm thinking, oh, fuck. I hope he's not just like me. Because what I do, like, I, it makes me sick in my stomach to imagine him going off at 18 yes. to war. Yeah. And, yeah, I guess that's the, the passing of the torch. You do it to our, we do it to our parents, then our kids do it to us. Exactly. Jessica's doing it to you now. <laughs> She's, how do you feel about her being a cop? I would have liked to, for her to pick a different way to go, but... Um, um, she's doing a really good job. She's having a hard time now. The officer that was killed um, was had, had recently mm, uh, the, SWAT, the SWAT officer that was killed. Really, um, he was in her class, and he was in the Gold SWAT team when he was killed. And she is the Gold SWAT team's hostage negotiator. So she was trying. She was there yeah. trying to make contact when they decided to go in. And so um, then she. Um, because two people were killed, one person was killed and one was seriously injured, the SWAT team had to have a debriefing. So she sat with the body the whole time the SWAT team was uh, was being debriefed. The SWAT team comes along and took over. They they separate out, but the body has to be guarded is the way they yeah. put it the whole time. And so she did that um, while the rest of them, while the actual assault team was being debriefed. Has she talked to you about that at all? Not really. You know, um, I mean, we went to the funeral, which was held at— um, in Coda, and there wasn't enough room to do that anywhere else. Yeah, and there were, there had to be a couple thousand officers there. Wow! I mean, they came from, from Florida, Oklahoma, New Mexico. There was there was a couple, um, um, there were a couple of officers from New York, from from New York City, wow. who came. Um, it was a, a well put on um, um, funeral. Uh, you know, rightly so. I mean, uh, probably the only really bad part of it was our mayor, Kirk Watson, who was a jerk. Hmm. And, um, you know, he had to basically beg the uh, wife to be allowed to speak, and he gave a political speech. Super. Yeah, which you would expect, I guess, out of a politician. And um, of the other people that got up and talked, every one of them was closed with an applause Nobody stood up, said a word. Nobody clapped their hands where Kirk was. It was a political speech. It was embarrassing. Wow. Well, that's a statement. You can tell I'm a real fan of Kirk Watson. Yeah. <laughs> so the Austin so City anyway, Mayor. Yeah. 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 So anyway, uh, you know, um, she she's a you know bar certified lawyer. She could have done anything she wants, but she wants to do good for people. Mm-hmm. Um, she's really into, um, you know, the, um, childcare. I mean, you know, the, the, the children that, that, um, are abused or trafficked or whatever to, to helping them. So, um, while I don't like the danger she's in, I get what she's doing. Sure. So. I understand. Incredible woman. I agree. And if you haven't heard that interview, I encourage you to go listen to it. I did. 
Yeah. I've, I've listened to it right after it became available. I figured you had. I did. I Every last minute of it. Yeah, that's you awesome. Know, as soon as it was available, I did. You know. Good. And like I was telling Brianna, you know, I, uh, I actually have listened to three more of your um, podcasts in the last week. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. So I wanted to know what you were getting me into. Yeah. <laughs> well, I hope that – I know you said she hadn't talked to you about it. I'm sure – I mean, losing a teammate's hard yes, for anybody. Yes, it is. And I, but I think in the interview I had with her, she she mentioned a lot of support that they have now within the department, mm-hmm. and and so hopefully they're getting that. Um, in this department, there are in APA was the Austin Police Officers Association. Yeah, they provide a lot of support. Yeah, you know internally, uh, they really do. Um, you know, even though she's interim, their chief police right now, uh, Robin Henderson, is an incredible woman. Um, mm. She uh, and and I had gotten I had gotten to meet her years ago and uh, get to and, and run into her every now and then. We try to participate in the things that Jessica does. Yeah, and so I'll see her every once in a while. She's phenomenal and a, and a great leader. She just didn't want to be there because yeah. nobody wants to be Austin's police chief. Mm, I can understand why. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look how many we've run through. You know, oh, for they sure. get they get to retirement age and they just quit. They just I'm not putting up with the with the politics of this anymore. It's like the position to be thrown under the bus. Yes, it is. And so nobody wants it. Yeah, hell no. Hell no. So how, I mean, she's experienced some loss. I'm sure you've maybe given her some advice on that. How did, how did you handle your experience through Vietnam doing all of that? Because we met this last summer. I know you were pursuing some, some help with that. What was your journey to there? What brought you to that retreat? A little bit of background. Um, I have um, an incredible wife who, you know, is a phenomenal mother and a, and a, and a wonderful wife at the same time. Her father is the same way, um, just like her. And um, I wanted to be like them. I thought that uh, I thought I was a failure and um you know that that um, I don't know what what do you call it when you, you when you think that you're a fake on what you're doing um, imposter syndrome yeah yeah that's a good way to put it yeah um, you felt imposter syndrome I do yes um, felt like that because um, because I was not like these people that I really looked up to and and how perfect they were and how good of parents they were and and everything um, and so you know I've seen. Uh, therapist along the way to to say you know I wanted to change I wanted to be like them you know in what way what did you feel that you, know, you were different I mean Brenda can stay Brenda could live twenty four hours a day with our grandkids I can only do a few days at a time and I need a break yeah I'm with you there you know, I, I, <laughs> I cannot yeah. I cannot the screaming uh-huh. you know. I mean, you know, there's somebody always, there's three of them. There's a, there's an almost nine-year-old and then um, a pair of six-year-old twins. And somebody is always in a fight. You know, somebody's crying and everything. And I just can't do it. You know, Brenda's dad can do it. I can't. And so I thought, okay, what, you know, what's wrong with my personality that I can't do this? Yeah. And so... um, and this has gone on for years and years and years. The other thing is, is that, you know, um, when you're driving a gunship and you're given a free fire zone, you kill a lot of people. Got no freaking clue how many. Yeah. And 
I have people tell me, well, that was my job. That's what I was supposed to do. You know, that doesn't help any. It didn't matter a bit. It really doesn't. Yeah. Um, you know, especially when you're, yeah, I started to say 99%. You're 100% sure some of those are women and kids yeah. that had no, they weren't armed. They weren't, you know, they weren't a threat to me um, or, or, or any of Americans. Except, you know, what I'm told is that, you know, they provided support. Well, okay. So anyway, I wanted to be, I wanted to not worry about that. Uh, I wanted to, I wanted to be a real person, not, you know, an imposter. And so um, I ran into this, this, this guy, um, this, that's an ex-SEAL. And, um, and basically his wife's a dentist and I had known her for quite a while and then met him and he loves flying and stuff. So, and I, I loved flying still. And, and um, so we flew a couple of times and, and one day I said, Hey, you know, Brian and I were flying. I said, Brian, you know, you're, you're, you're smoother. You're, you're more, it's just like flow smoothly. And I used that term. I said, what'd you do? And he said, well, I went to this, you know, this retreat and, um, uh, you know, and I, and he said, "I really, it really kind of helped me see who I was and everything." And so I asked him about it. <laughs> and the only say, thing he would do is say, "Call Scotty at this number." That's period. all he told. That's all he told. So, me. Probably, took me so probably took me a month. You know, I saved it. So finally, one day, I called Scotty. And Scotty, was like, and Scotty was like, "I'm just going to finish working out. Go, finish to, working this out, go to this website yeah. and then call this number." Yeah. And I went, yeah. "Who am I going to talk to? Just go to the website and talk to this number. Click." <laughs> That was it. Pretty blunt, isn't he? <laughs> Pretty much. You know, and I know you know Scotty. Uh -huh. And and got I got to know Scotty, so I get Scotty. You know, I totally get Scotty. Yeah. You know, um somebody who's gone from twenty-five years as a SEAL, yeah, and as a SEAL warrant officer. So you got, you know, you got leadership responsibilities, your your team dies, and you know, then comes out and tries to help other people. It's pretty incredible. Mm -hmm. Anyway. So through a fairly convoluted process of uh, talking to Shannon and talking to Patrick and having, what, three Zoom meetings with Patrick and everything, they finally said, okay, you know, come to our deal. And so I went. And, you know, I remember, I remember it's where I met you. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if I should have said that or not, but whatever. Okay. That's all right. <laughs> I, I think I said okay, it, actually. Okay, right, Yeah, fine. that's how we met. Okay, fine then. Um, Anyway, they were going around the room, and, and I was going to be close to last, going around the room trying to figure out, you know, say, why are you here? And, and, I, and, I, and I really wanted to make it concise. I didn't want to go into it. Sometimes I get a little wordy. But anyway, I mean, why I was there is that um, I'm a re retired orthodontist, you know. I'm, if, if, if that time, you know, well, yeah, that was on that, not that long ago. I was 74 years old. Why does this one year of my life seem to be the most there, the, 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 the most important? And I want that not to be important, and I want to be this person. I want to be like my wife and like my father-in-law. Mm. Turns, Turns out I got way more than that out of it. Um, I got I'm not a bad person. I got that— um, I 
hang on. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, Sorry, I, I, okay. I, okay. Um, I got that um, not only am I not a bad person, but uh, I don't need to be somebody different. I'm okay who I am. And, um, God, what a, what a change. I mean, that two days all together, two nights, two days, parts of two other days. And, and I'm happier now than I've been in 30 years. Yeah. Um, I am, I'm confident in who I am. I'm not trying, I'm no longer trying to be somebody else because you know what? At my age, I don't know of anybody's age, I can't be somebody else. I can't be different. And um, so to have um, what I said a minute ago, you know, I don't even know how many people I killed. I'd have never said that before July the 28th of 2024. Hmm. You know, I mean, I, I've been asked, you know, how many people would you kill? Which is a dumb freaking question. Yeah. I mean, to ask of a soldier, it's just the one that's been to war. I said, yeah. I mean, and, and, and a lot of times I'll say, you know what? That's just really not an appropriate question. But every once in a while I go, I don't know. I had a girlfriend's family member ask me that at a Thanksgiving one time at the table really? in front of the whole family. Yeah. I wanted to leave that. I didn't know what to say. Like, is this some sort of metric that you want to measure my service by? Like, is this the conversation that y'all yeah. want to have? Like, he knew I was a sniper. Like, yeah, it, it wasn't job. that job. right. Like, it wasn't that my job was something else, and I just got caught up in a thing. Like, that was my job, and and yeah, I don't. It blows my mind that people come at at, at servicemen with that question, um, and and yeah. It's an interesting thing to to ask someone, particularly in a way, because it feels like a unit of measurement. It does. It does. It does. It's like, is this going to adjust your level of respect for my service or the the work that I did? Like, why is that the numeric that you want? Um, how much trauma have you had, or how much you know? And, and it's a, it's a terrible thing, I think, to for people to ask someone. But it's in, I mean, just what one of the things you said, you know, I don't, um, most of the people who ask me that, they don't even have any clue what trauma is. Mm-hmm. No, they don't, they don't, you just can't get it unless you've done it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it definitely, it definitely, um, put some dents in a couple places. Although I often say, you know, if I'd have chased one, you know, just tiny, tiny thing in my life, I may not be sitting here today. You know, one little thing might have kicked me off in a whole different direction. And as it is, I mean, let's face it, I went from being a dumbass, you know, to flying Cobras in Vietnam. I mean, eight years as a a bush pilot and, you know, and going to college and then practicing 30-some-odd years as an orthodontist. I mean, I'm pretty proud of myself now. Six months ago, I wasn't, and so this is, uh, you know, this is this is how. Um, what did you experience during the retreat? The, I guess, what was the, because it was psilocybin that, yes. that did that for right. you. What was that experience like? Scary itself. 
Fuck, man. I mean, because I'm going to be really honest with you, you know. I mean, I've smoked a little pot in my life, but that's it. That's it. It's a little different, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, man. I mean, I was. And I mean, when they set that when they set that bowl down with those two capsules in it and that tea right beside it, I was looked at that and went. It's kind of first. It's kind of like the first time I ever jumped out of an airplane with a parachute. I am going to do this, no matter what common sense tells me. I am going to do this. So I picked it up and did it. You know. Now, what's the experience like? Again, I was, you know, I was afraid during the thing too. It's very interesting. I came out of it. The initial thing was, I mean, there's a lot of of other parts of it, but the initial thing when I first woke up was, God, man, I really love my wife more than I thought, you know? Mm. And I even said that out loud when I was there. You know, somebody asked me, would Sienna asked me, you know, and I sort of said, you know, I actually realized I really give a shit about her more than I thought. And, you know, because the whole time of the thing, you know, I'm laying down on that mat where you're laying down and she's sitting right beside me and I'm dying during this whole thing and i'm just really sure i'm dying and i'm really sorry because she's so much younger than me you know that she needs to go out and have fun you know so i thought that and then um okay I see this, see this picture. picture. This has happened this over the next over few the next days, week. not right afterwards, but over the next few days. I see this, this vision, vision of, of there's nothing, nothing around me. There's no, I'm not on the floor. There's no walls. There's nothing. And it's blue, blue. all the way around. And there's and this, this tan, tan wall, wall of cubby holes. And, and in those in cubby, in those cubby holes, are the events of my life hmm. and they're all screwed up in the order they're put in there and how they're done, you know, and, and what they represent. And all of a sudden, all of those events just fall out on the floor and then start realigning themselves. And then I start then I start putting them in the cubby holes. I know this sounds crazy as hell. Not at all. You know, I mean, it, it, you know, but I mean, I'm seeing this. Yeah. I'm, I'm visualizing. I'm, see, I'm visualizing this. And I walked out of that not wanting to change who I am. That's awesome. So, you know, um, it, uh, it's been, it's, it's, it was a, it, it, I, you know, my next door neighbor now is trying to go, is trying to get in. Yeah. And, um, and two other people that I've, I've told about it, uh, you know, that, that are, uh, my next door neighbor is a brilliant guy. You know, he's, um, he's just about to turn 40. He owns a company that um, he is a, you know, he doesn't like my term, but he is a professional hacker. He has a company of 110 people around the world that Google is one of his clients. Facebook is one of his clients that try to hack into their computers to show them the weakness of their computers. And that's what he does. Wow. Brilliant guy. Absolutely brilliant. Got out of college. Went to work for the work CIA. CIA, CIA called CIA. him while he was in college going, okay, you need to come work for us. And mm-hmm. so he went CIA first, hacking. Then he went to NSA. Um, and then he started his own business doing wow. just that. So anyway, um, talk about an imposter. He does not believe. He believes he's fooled everybody into thinking that he was good at this. He's fooled a lot of people then. Yeah, he has. 
yeah. you know, but yeah. he's a cool guy. He's really a nice guy, but you know, he's very depressed and, and, um, um, you know, and I started, Zach, what's amazing is we left that program on Sunday about noon and he lives next door to me and, you know, he called me Monday morning. He said, Hey, you want to go to dinner tonight? And I went, yeah, sure. And Brenda was out of town. I mean, I was there at home alone and he and his daughter and his wife were there and we had gone to dinner before with like Brenda and I, he and his daughter and, and everything. So I figured that's what he wanted. And so he comes over by himself and I said, well, you know, is, is uh, um, Katie going, uh, Katie and Cameron? He goes, no, it's just you. And so he goes, you know, we go over there. Now he has, he has no, no idea I've been to this. He has no idea, no idea of what I thought of myself or anything before that. And um, he, um, you know, he starts talking, he was, he was just talking a little bit and I thought, God, you know, cause, cause I'd ask him all kinds of questions and, you know, about what he does. Cause I think it's really interesting. Yeah. And, um, you know, he went, well, you know, I'm very successful, but I'm, I'm so afraid that tomorrow it's going to be gone. And I said, why? And he started explaining it. And I told him it right there. I said, let me just tell you what I just did this weekend. Literally, Literally. it was the next day. Incredible. So, um, so he's been, he's been in contact with, um, uh, Peter and Shannon and, you know, they're shut down right now. Right. And, uh, but hopefully they come back, and so he, he wants to go. Yeah, I think I've got a laundry list of people waiting as well. I hope that they're able to get it back up and going. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. I remember it for some reason that retreat. I mean, even the first one, it, it had that sense to it as well that that was exactly what I needed at the point that I needed it most. And this summer, the exact same thing happened again. It was exactly where I needed to be and what I needed to experience at this point in my life. And I feel like the, the psilocybin almost has a wisdom to it in that way of, of giving you whatever it mm -hmm. was that, that you needed in that moment, if you're open to it. Um, and I'd do it again. You know, I, I would. And, and I mean, Brenda asked me about it. And I said, you know, I, th I'd probably, I would probably do this, you know, once a year. It, it, it mm -hmm. you know, if, if I started feeling differently, I would do it more frequently, but I'd probably do it once a year, even if I didn't think I needed it, you know, as much, um, because I think it, you know, I gained so much more from it. And I think that, um, um, I went in, I went with, in such with such reservations that I don't think I could have gotten all out. I, there's no way I could have gotten everything out of it that I really, really that, that was possible, possible because, because it, I, had to, I had to, I had to break down a break wall down. for sure. I had to break down a break wall, down wall before I got going. So if I had started from level ground to start with, I'd have been better off. Absolutely. I agree a hundred percent. My first time I was, I was afraid as well. And so there is a, an element of skepticism, suspicion, fear going on until that kind of subsides enough to, to relax into it or, you know, and, and then the second time that I went, I was ready the moment that I was, I was almost giddy. Like I know, I know what I'm about to feel and I know what this is going to physically feel like and I'm comfortable with it. I'm more interested and curious of the adventure I'm about to go on and what it's going to give me at the end. And, and I think that that's more likely what, what you'll experience as you get comfortable in the medicine. I think so, too. So let me ask you a question. 
Can you or did you seem to regulate the intensity by using the uh, the eye mask? Yes. See, I didn't get that until it was all over because basically she, the lady sitting beside me said, you never took that thing off except to go to the bathroom twice. Mm. And she said, so, so, you know, you were very okay. intense because yes. when I first yeah. kind of became, I'm going to call it conscious to the world again. I don't really, I don't really know. <laughs> yeah. I don't really know what else to say. I, I went to her, I looked at her and goes, I had a heart attack during this, a little tiny one. And I held my I fingers held my up finger. like I said, a little tiny heart attack, but I had one. And she goes, Oh no. And so she screamed for a, somebody to bring a blood pressure cuff over. And then yeah. she and somebody else were trying to put it on. And I go, give me that. I can put that on. And I, I was putting it on. And I don't know if I had told you this before. And Sienna's, Sienna's walking by. And Sienna's a physician. Sienna. And yeah. Sienna goes, if he can put his own blood pressure cuff on, he's fine. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so, oh, yeah. So. Now, you can very much regulate it with the eye mask. See, I didn't do that. And we, we didn't really, it's called, I think, grounding out. And so I had a friend of mine that I served with right next to me that uh, I think it was both of our second time. And I would take it off because I'm also very curious, like, what does the room look like right yeah. now? I know what it looks like with the eye mask. How does it look without it? And everything's kind of moving and flowing and almost a little bit alive. Yeah. And I looked over and he had this fluorescent blanket on and that blanket's just kind of moving. It's very <laughs> cool looking. And he's like twisted up in the blanket and looking a little dirt and like drooling on himself. And I start smiling and then he opens his eyes. And he looks at me and I look at him and we both just die laughing and reach out and like fist bump each other and like, let's go back in and like, okay. And we put our mask on and just, and it is it's almost like a gate. Yeah, you can yeah. turn it on and turn it See, off. I didn't turn, turn it, it off. And off. so it kept getting worse and worse and worse. I mean, I, I, I mean, I swear, I swear I was dying. I mean, I was, I was very certain that I was dying in there and I was very upset yeah. about it because Brenda was sitting right there and I was really sorry about, you know, not having been a better husband and everything. So when I came out and realized I shouldn't be, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, anyway, yeah. but we've all we've decided, all decided that she's, she's, she agrees I'm not going to get any better. <laughs> then I have the personality I do and it's going to be there. So, yeah, I mean, it's an interesting reset that, you know, it's a tool. Yeah. Right? It is, it and is. it's a great and, and it's tool a if used appropriately. Yeah. And if you know how to use it, you use it with an intention. Because I mean, people do, I guess, party with it. I almost feel like that's a, not a respectful way to use the medicine. And maybe it's because the context that I've used it in isn't for that. It's been very ceremonial. Um, well, well, okay. The weekend... Okay. Uh, the weekend wasn't just the medicine. I mean, you got um, uh, you got a couple people in there that have um, you know some some significant experience in in psychology, and mm. you're you're getting lectures in between. You don't even re I mean, it wasn't until I left there that I realized that okay, the medicine was only part of this. A yeah. lot of it was you know, and and Scotty. When he would say, "Okay, everybody, how are you feeling right now?" You know, you know, and 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 uh, and things, and you know, each one of those times was meant to do something. So it wasn't just a bullshit conversation. For so sure. a lot of it was that, and and what are you getting, and making you really think about stuff. You know, um, I am. I'm, I'm, I'm about as agnostic as they come. I don't believe or disbelieve. You know. And so, so that yeah. is, you know, so Scotty kept saying, you know, spiritually, how are you? And, you know, I guess yes. that you don't have to be 
And, and the more I started thinking about it, it's more that I'm not into uh, organized religion. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so, um, but it made me think about that. You know, but the conversations did not just the medicine. Now, the, the medicine just opened my mind to just about anything. I mean, I, you know, almost anything's possible here. Let, let's go. And then, and then uh, what's Scotty's wife's name? Cindy. Cindy, right. Then Cindy, um, uh, on the uh, uh, DMT, the 5-MEO, that I did not do on the second day because I was still scared shitless. And, um, you know, and just worried about that heart attack coming on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, so, you know, but I went in, I went and did everything except the medication, you know, yeah. with Cindy talking and everything. She's really bright. She's a very bright oh, yeah. woman. Um, so... Uh, and, and just listening to her talk and the, and the things she would discuss and stuff. So, and, and, you know, the thoughts of how to look at things. Um, again, my mind was so open to so much that uh, it was good. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it was, you know, but I, I think it, recreational, recreational use, well, wouldn't have gotten as much out of it, I guess is what I'm sure. trying to say, that there's yeah. more to it than just, you know, than just the uh, medicine. I agree. I agree. The intention, the setting, the set, the all of that plays a huge role. Because I've done it in other contexts, uh, and it, it didn't have the same effect mm-hmm. as going to that retreat yeah. and having those people there. And, I mean, it's also just a group of strangers, but you're all there for the same reason. Yeah. You're all there to try to get some help. Everyone's dealing with their own sure, dramas. Sure. Uh, you know, life builds up for everyone. And whether, you know, it was Vietnam in the 70s or... Some, you know, child abuse that yeah. someone endured, you know, that, that covers the spectrum of life experience. I, I think it really... It, I think the world would be a better place if everybody did it. <laughs> there's, a, there's, there's a whole lot of us that would be better off, you know. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, it was good. It was really, really good. That's great. What advice um, would you give to other servicemen from the past to the present or the future that are, are feeling those same emotions that you were going through that, that transition back that imposter syndrome haunted by a, a year of service, despite a life of good deeds. That's not a simple question. That's not a simple, or at least there's not a simple answer to it. There's not a one word answer sure. to that. Um, I think the first thing that comes to mind is believe in yourself. Um, you know, I don't think there are very many dumbasses in the world, no matter how much you think you are. You know, there's you got value. Accept the fact that a combat is going to change you for the rest of your life. And, and that's one of the things I didn't, that I wanted to go back to. I don't know what I wanted to go back to, but maybe the person I was before. It's been interesting. I've asked... Um, it's, you know, not the one that was going to interrupt the blood supply, but I've asked old girlfriends, you know, that knew me before Vietnam, you know, what do you think? And they go, yeah, yeah, you know, you're different. You know, I mean, I was trying to figure out if it was, if it was real or me, Mm -hmm. you know, or something I saw, you know, um, uh, it just something I thought and, but not in a bad way. Um, You know, now I've asked one of the same ones, how about now? This is since July the 28th of this year, since the retreat. And 
you know, overwhelmingly more like the smooth flowing person I used to be instead of, you know, kind of jerky and different things, different attitudes about different things. And, you know, I used to be real reactionary uh, about things. And, and just in the last few months, I think, you know, some of that's really gone away. Now, also in the last few months, I've, I've canceled my uh, Facebook account too. No, oh, that you helps. Know, which, which really <laughs> makes a difference, you know? Yeah. You know, because you don't, uh, anyway, you know. It's toxic it as is. hell. It know. is toxic. God. I mean, you know, people need to understand that. That is a bad thing. And yeah. and I never was on any of the other. I mean, I never had any, I never did, you know, Twitter or whatever any of them are. I don't know. Yeah. You're you know, not missing anything. You know, so, no, I don't think so either. And yeah. and so, um, and that was one of the things that Cindy talked about. And I thought, okay, you know, that sounds a great idea. You know? Yep. And so, yep. Um, Scotty's talked about the uh, the '90s dump. Get off your phone while you're pooping in the morning. Just do something without your phone. Yeah. In your hands. yeah. <laughs> the '90s dump challenge. <laughs> there you go. I mean, that's. Yeah. I mean, it is. So I think that. You know, the biggest thing is you're not a bad person for doing, you know, what you did. I don't care if you killed people. You know, it doesn't really, it doesn't really matter. I mean, yeah, is it a good thing? You know, I don't think, I don't, I, think, I don't, I don't think, think all those people that, I, that died because of me, I don't think they accomplished anything. I mean, I don't think we made any difference at all. I mean, you know, Vietnam is a communist country. And, yeah. you know, it is, uh, it didn't get any better than it was before, except that now, and I think they would have been the same at this time, they're, you know, part of the country is going more capitalism. You know, they build all kinds of things. I mean, I, I looked at the, the, my razor this morning when I was shaving. I happened to look at it for the first time. It says Vietnam stamped on it. It's where the damn thing was made. There's no escape. Seriously? <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, seriously? You know, first time I ever noticed that was this morning. That's funny. Um, so, but... It's hard. I mean, hard. I tell you, you know, a, a, a quickie story. My third daughter's uh, got married a week ago. I mean, sorry, a year ago this past um, uh, September. So they've been married, what, uh, 14 months. And uh, he came to me about two and a half years ago. He was a Marine. He was a Marine uh, captain. And he came to me about two and a half years ago and asked about marrying her. And I said, not while you're deployable. Mm. I said, I'll tell you what, why don't y'all live together? My wife about hit the ceiling. But I said, why don't y'all just move in? Play whatever you want. But, I mean, that lets that you lets both walk both. away. I said, you know, as long as you're deployable. I said, even if you deploy and you come back and you still want to get married, fine. I'm, I'm, I'm a friend of support, but I'm not right now. Mm. Because I think it changes your it changes your personality. If the way it changes afterwards, I think that's great. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, I have an ex-wife. And uh, we were not married during Vietnam or anything, but, you know, shortly after. And, uh, and she's not a bad person. You know, she really, she really isn't. Um, you know, the, ver- the marriage is, you know, the, the dissolution of the marriage is, is no more my fault than hers. And, and I'm going to, and I mean, I'll sit right and tell you she had a boyfriend, you know. But, okay, I spent six and a half days a week going to school for nine months a year. And I was gone into the outback of, you know, of northern Canada and, and the Yukon for the other yeah. three months a year. She didn't see me most of the time. Yeah. You know, I mean, she's lonesome. You know, I mean, that's human nature. So I don't, you know, I really don't falter for it. Yeah. So things change you. Yeah. I I know it's a little bit cliche, at least I feel in saying it. Um, 
But that closing line on that movie, Saving Private Ryan, yeah. when I first saw it as a kid, it hit me. And then having joined and served and, and had friends lost and the whole earn it thing where they told, it was that Tom Hanks told Matt Damon's character, like we more, more or less had this whole mission to save you. Now go do something with your life. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel that responsibility for, That's I don't know if it. I don't know if it's a good or a bad way to perceive it, um, but I think it's an I excellent way. I mean, I think it's a really good way to know. And, 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 you know, I've never really thought about that until you said it right then. But it's the thing to do, you yeah. know. Honor their sacrifice by doing something right, right. with your life. And I don't know what's good or bad, but I've tried to do things. I've tried to say yes to opportunities and not be stagnant, not feel like... Like I, if I see them again, if there's a heaven and, and they're there, I want them to shake my hand mm-hmm. and not tell me I wasted what they lost, the opportunity that they never had by, you know, I don't know playing video games or sulking and, and just mm-hmm. being consumed by the past. Uh, let it be the past and try to move on. Forgive myself. Forgive everybody else. I was 20 and dumb. So were a lot of the other guys too, right? I mean, I, you know, and I mean, I totally get it. I mean, yeah. and this is why I think this is why the military puts the, you know, the tip of the spear is in your early twenties, late teens and early twenties, because you're very malleable to do whatever they oh, want, yeah. you know, yeah. no matter. They'd what. have a hard time recruiting at thirty. <laughs> they did. <yeah. laughs> like, uh, you want me to do what? Uh, I'm telling you what. No, you never. Good. You, you seldom in in my entire unit flying Cobras, not one commissioned officer. Really? All of them, all of us were. I shouldn't say that. There was one, but he was the gun team. You know, I mean, you know, I mean, we weren't broken up like that, but just call it the gun team commander, you know. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we had an overall yeah. unit commander, but um, he was a, a, a lieutenant, you know, um, and everybody else was, in, was a warrant officer. And higher ranking officers, they don't fly those things. They don't do that shit. Yeah. Yeah. You know? So special breed. Yeah. You know, I guess, I guess, or, you know, or just crazy, (laughs) you know, you know, and just, just, you haven't seen enough of the world to understand that, you know, there are consequences to this stuff. Mm. And, uh, so thank you for coming in. I really appreciate it. It It's great to see you again. (laughs) Stay zero.